John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hi, this is Steve. In 1979, my parents took me to Mill Valley to see a movie called Being There. Looking back at it, I now wonder what my parents were thinking. I mean, I don't mean to say this was irresponsible parenting. It's not like they took me to Jaws or The Exorcist. But did my parents know what kind of movie this was? I mean, I just wonder what they thought their 11-year-old son would get out of this odd, quirky truly ambiguous fable about an innocent gardener with the mind of a child who suddenly becomes an advisor to the president, the best friend of the richest man in the world, and perhaps in the future, his replacement. And not just the head of his company, but with his wife and maybe even more. I mean, this is a weird movie, and one I certainly wouldn't expect my son to enjoy, and he's only a year younger than I was when I saw it. But <laughs> the truth is, I loved it. I watched this movie over and over again on TV. What I don't know, and what I wish I could find out, is what exactly did my 11-year-old brain get from this film? Did I understand the points that it was making about society, politics, and the flawed tools we use to assess the people that we meet? Did I see the film as an attack on privilege or religion? And what did my 11-year-old self think of Chauncey Gardner or Chance the Gardner? Honestly, I'm not sure I have those answers now because being there doesn't give you easy answers. It's just telling a very odd, very funny story about Chance the Gardener and the effect he has on almost everyone he interacts with. What I can say is Being There is a beautifully made film directed by Hal Ashby and starring Peter Sellers in what is arguably his finest role with an incredible supporting cast of Shirley MacLaine, Melvin Douglas, Richard Dessart, and one of our favorites on The Cinephiles, Jack Warden. So, if you haven't seen this amazing film, just visit cinephiles.net where you can buy or stream 
being there along with every other movie we've ever reviewed through Amazon Prime. Then come back on Friday to hear John and I explore this completely unique and for some entirely bewildering film, Being There. Uh, Mr. Gardner, uh, my editors and I have been wondering if you would consider writing a book for us. Something about your um, political philosophy. What do you say? I can't write. <laughs> of course not. Who can nowadays? Look, uh, we can give you a six-figure advance. I'll provide you with the very best ghostwriter, proofreaders. I can't read. <laughs> of course you can't. No one has the time. We, we glance at things. We watch television. I like to watch TV. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host and VO artist here in Los Angeles. Oh, no, in San Diego, California. Still can't get used to that. Still can't get used to it. Uh, and I'm looking forward to have this conversation with you, Steve, about a film that I watched for the first time for this episode. Well, that answers my first question. The film, of course, <laughs> we're talking about is being there. Um, and I, so I'm the opposite because mm. my parents took me to see this in the theater in Mill Valley when I was 11 mm. years old. And I watched it a bunch because it was one that was on. I don't know. We had Showtime. It was probably on Showtime or something. So I watched it a whole bunch as a kid. Hadn't watched it in 30 years before yeah. watching it again this week. Wow. And and the, one of the big things I've just been thinking about having, having just rewatched it is like, what did I as a kid see in this film? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, because it's a yeah. very weird, weird movie. Well, I'm sure, you know, I, I can't speak for you. So you, you, I think you're the only one that can really answer that. But I can understand its appeal to a young child because Peter Sellers is essentially a young child. Chance the Gardener, the world is very simplistic in his eyes at the time. But also, if you are, as I imagine you were at a young age, an inquisitive young child, some of the concepts they were brought up, you must have maybe organically or subconsciously sensed that there was something more about these discussions about politics and the world and who to believe, who not to believe in the plasticity of people who are uh, in power. Yes. I, well, and I think it, you know, it so exposes it's such a 70s movie and mm. exp and, and attacking the elites and exposing their ridiculousness, I think, in a lot of ways. And that certainly appealed to me then and appeals to me now. Um, uh, just a bit of pre-production. This is based on a book by Jerzy Kaczynski. And, you know, sometimes I read the books. If it if it seems if it's a really important film, like we did The Godfather, obviously I read mm. The Godfather. And sometimes if it's a really short book, <laughs> this book's 141 pages. So on Audible, that's a two-hour book. So I, I, I listened to it. And this is definitely one of, the, one of those examples where the movie's much better than the book. It's not that the book, basically what's in the movie is in the book. Yeah. But what makes this movie work, I think, is all the sort of details and little bits of performance and looks and things like that. And that mm. isn't in the book. Yeah. Um, a little bit about Jerzy Kaczynski. He uh, he was born in Poland, uh, and as a Jewish kid during World War II, he was hidden under a false identity with mm. a Catholic family, and that's how he survived the Holocaust. Wow. And um, he actually, at some point, and I'm assuming it was after during or after World War II, he went completely mute, he says, for eight years. Whoa. 
Now, there are some reasons, in my opinion, what yeah. little research I did on his life, that maybe I don't believe everything that he says about what <laughs> happened to him. Okay. And I would never say that this guy, you know, you know, he was a Jewish kid who lived in Poland during the Holocaust. So yeah. I don't mean any disrespect towards that experience, but there's some other things about his life that seem a little fishy. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and one of them, and, and again, I don't, this isn't a criticism, but he got to the U.S. by creating a fake foundation in the U.S. that was sponsoring him, including a whole bunch of forged documents that went both to the United States government and to the communist government in Poland that guaranteed his return. Wow. So he, there's definitely some, you know, <laughs> false identity during World War II to, to survive the war, false papers and false foundations to be able to get to the U.S. Then he publish, publishes several novels. He's very well educated. Mm -hmm. And all of the novels, including being there, people have said, have accused him of plagiarism because they were very similar to Polish novels that had never really been translated into English. Oh, wow. Now, I, I didn't go so far as to read all the Polish novels in their original <laughs> Polish, so I don't have an opinion on, on whether or not that's the case, yeah. but there's a lot of stuff about him that makes me go like, I don't know how trustworthy this guy is. Yeah, fair point. And it's not the first time, obviously, a great art has been co-opted or, or stolen or, cre or created based on someone else's work. So not a surprise. And clearly this guy is a survivor one way or another yeah. for better or worse, you know, and um, um, interesting story for sure. So the, the novel gets published in 71 and instantly there's a lot of interest in the movie, mm. particularly from Peter Sellers. Yeah. Apparently Peter Sellers keeps calling Jersey and says, I have to play this part. I have to play this part. I have to play this part. And of course, Peter Sellers, uh, the last time I think we saw him was in Dr. Strangelove. Yes. Yeah. Um, and he is one of the most influential comedians of all time, in particular with the goon show, which basically all of British comedy, including Monty Python, you know, this was, this was their mm -hmm. Holy grail was P Peter Sellers and um, the cast on the goon show. Um, it's, it's funny. Your parents brought you to this Peter Sellers movie. My parents always brought me to all the Pink Panther Peter Sellers movies. So there's the difference. That Okay. <laughs> you might have just answered my question because I, <laughs> I kept going like, why did my parents take me to this movie? And actually, I bet that's why, because I love the Pink Panther movies. And oh, we went so to see all of those. Thought, and I bet yeah. that's why I got taken to this <laughs> because it's not a kid movie. No, <laughs> no. Um, I mean, it's not that it's scary or adult or anything. It's just it's really right. odd. Right. Um. The producer, Andrew Bronsberg, met Kaczynski at Sharon Tate's funeral. Wow. Wow. Because Kaczynski is buddies with Roman Polanski, both Polish mm -hmm. Jews, both Holocaust survivors living in the United States. And Bronsberg had produced several of Polanski's movies. And that's mm -hmm. how they met. Um, Hal Ashby, who is the director of this film, also loved the book and wanted yeah. to do it. And Kaczynski said no to both Peter Sellers and Hal Ashby. And he went to the producer and said, hey, I've got a South American billionaire who wants to give me all of the money to write and direct the film myself. <laughs> Again, I go, D was that true? I don't really know. Uh, Bronsberg thought that would be a disaster and that Kaczynski should not be a director. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, they do bring in Hal Ashby and Hal Ashby goes, wait, Peter Sellers wants to do it? Of course we should do it with Peter Sellers. And that's mm. how this finally came together in 1979. Um, 
And Ash, real quick, Ashby is such an interesting director. We've mm-hmm. never done any of his movies, and and you know, a guy who came around to prominence at the same time as Scorsese and Coppola and Lucas, uh, and a lot of these seventies contemporaries of his, uh, and someone who kind of made his bones through the process of of film and came to Los Angeles. At least the legend is he came to Los Angeles, went, he had no money. Uh, his father had committed suicide when he was 12 and he kind of, you know, kind of wandered around the world a little bit, came to Los Angeles, went to like an unemployment place, said, I'd like to work at the movies. And they somehow found him a job working like in one of those low level places uh, at a movie studio. And he just eventually kind of figured things out, worked his way up, met some people, uh, a director, I think, uh, recommended he become an editor. So he started becoming, he was apprenticed to become an editor for a number of years, uh, and then eventually became friends with Norman Jewison and edited a lot of Norman Jewison's movies, and then struck out on his own, and then was mentored into becoming a director. So the really roundabout way to become a director for Hal Ashby, and, you know, after he directed what a lot of people consider a number of unforgot, a number of um, underappreciated classics ended up uh, 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 spiraling out. And in fact, this is the last film before he kind of spirals out into drugs and eventually his untimely death. So a very, very interesting story, Steve. And I wonder why no one gives Hal Ashby the same kind of respect that they give to these other directors from the 70s. Even people like Coppola, who was never able to replicate and we spoke about what he created in the 70s. I'm so glad you brought all this up and a couple of things about it. One is the story you just told is one of the reasons that Hal Ashby wanted to do this film because yep. he felt like I, cause he came from the Midwest and he felt like he was totally thrust out of a very safe uh, insular world mm. into the big scary world of Los Angeles. And so he found a lot of uh, connection uh, with this character Um I also think uh, some of the stories about him working for Norman Jewison um, are really interesting. Yeah. Um, One of them is, is that, so he gets hired to work on uh, his first Jewison movie, which I'm trying to remember which one it was. It might've been Thomas Crown Affair. And, and Cincinnati kid, Cincinnati Cincinnati kid. Kid. Thank you. So Mm -hmm. he's working on Cincinnati kid and Norman Jewison calls him up and says, Hey, so you want me to come down to the editing room? And Hal Ashby goes, Why? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and he says well i don't know you know help you pick takes or something and and ashby goes listen you either trust my taste or you don't if you don't trust my taste then i shouldn't then you cut your own fucking movie <laughs> and Jessica goes okay okay all right kid all right kid <laughs> and they have just an amazing and it sounds like i remember when we did um in the heat of the night yeah uh, and hal ashby was the editor on that but he was it sounds like he was in a lot of ways, Jewison's most important partner. He's on the set. He's, you know, mm-hmm. talking about, you know, shots and he's, you know, run, and he's being more like a producer and a creative partner in a lot of ways. So, yeah, yeah he I, he's got a really, really interesting career. Yeah, and he um, won the Oscar for that, too, the editing for that. Oh, that's, that's a great yeah. point. Yeah. Um, apparently, <laughs> so um, apparently his style of editing was fairly intense and involved, like, uh, for, I think, Thomas Crown Affair, mm-hmm. he... He waited until several weeks after Jewison stopped shooting to even touch, look at the film because wow. he wanted total separation between the shoot and right. cutting, which I understand that. And then once he started, he moved into the editing room and didn't leave for seven straight months. Wow. Like put a bed there, slept there. <sighs> it sounds like it was just up all day, up all night, smoking weed and cutting. <laughs> Jesus. Um, 
I'm envious of people that can do that. Jesus. <laughs> I wish I could do that. Good God. I mean, I mean, there is something about editing. I've never moved into a, an editing room for seven months, but <laughs> it's a very obsessive and meticulous kind of job. You know, oh, you know, you, you do a lot of editing. Sir. Obviously you edit the show, Steve. So, and you've done editing on your own projects. It's a very isolationary situation. Yeah. You know, you're, you're kind of, a uh, lot. I mean, when I do editing, I go out of my fucking mind editing an 11 minute trailer reaction or 11 minute review when I'm doing stuff. I can't imagine editing an entire movie and scrolling through hours and hours of footage to try to find the right takes. Uh, but, you know, certainly it probably seasoned him very well to become a director because he probably knew exactly what he was looking for, what worked, what didn't work. And, you know, in creating this film, Harold and Maude, The Last Detail um, and Coming Home, those are some incredible movies to put on your resume as a director. It's funny you say this because uh, I, I had these notes if in, in my notes here for, for when mm -hmm. we talk about posts, but I'll say it now, which is you would think that being an editor would give him a perfect image of what he actually wants. But he basically says, I have no idea how the movie's going to fucking cut together oh, until I start cutting right. it together. Like Never mind. He, and, and what's so funny is I totally, I totally get that. Yeah. And one of the reasons I dislike having other, I totally know why he didn't want Norman Jewison to come to the editing room. One of the reasons I didn't ever liked having clients when I used to edit, you know, for hire mm. come to the editing room is it would expose that it was so obvious I had no fucking idea what I was doing. <laughs> because the way editing works for me is it's a lot of trial and error. Like yeah. you, you throw something up there and you go, nope. And then I throw something else up there and go, nope. And then something kind of clicks in a way and I go, oh, well, let's follow that idea for a while. Mm. And I edit, 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 edit. nope. <laughs> then throw it out. <laughs> it's just so much like just kind of fumbling along until yeah. things start to click. <clears throat> Um, in his concept, contract, Jersey Kaczynski had the right to write the first several drafts of the screenplay, which he did. And everyone, producer, Hal Ashby, everyone was like, this is unshootable. Just <laughs> like added all these other details that were unnecessary and threw out things in his own book that were like the best parts of it. Mm. So Hal Ashby wanted uh, Robert Jones, Bob Jones, to write the screenplay, who he had worked with before. Uh, uh, and what's so funny is... Bob Jones is a screenwriter and an editor mm. on the last detail. Bob Jones came up as a potential editor and Hal Ashby went, there's no way I'm hiring Bob Jones. He's a super fast editor and fast editors are bad editors. I don't <laughs> want to hire him. And they went to Bob Jones and said, Bob, do you want to work on last detail? And he went, no, I don't want to work on last detail. Hal Ashby's a crazy man who moves into the editing room and edits obsessively for months at a time. I don't want that gig. So, so they don't, he doesn't hire him. And then he starts doing last detail. He goes to see the first cut of the film with whoever the editor is who hired. I don't know who it was and goes, and basically after watching, it says, you will never touch another fucking foot of my film ever again. And he fires him, hires Bob Jones as the editor. They love each other. <laughs> but he's also a screenwriter. He writes a screenplay for Coming Home, yeah. uh, another Hal Ashby movie, wins the Oscar. And he comes in and writes the screenplay for being there. That's another film of his I haven't seen. I, I've never I, seen it either. I got to say, man, yeah, this is something that I need to rectify because there are a number of these that I need to see. So, God damn it. All right. Anyway, maybe this is maybe I'm the reason why like I symbolize why he hasn't been revered as he should be because maybe people don't gravitate to his movies at the same levels that they do Scorsese's and Coppola's. So, maybe I mean, I'm, huh? he's 
he's an odd one. You know, yes. the, it's yeah. like Taxi Driver is a fucking um, punch to the face of a film. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, obviously, we talked a lot about The Godfather and how profound that is. Harold yeah. and Maude is weird. Yeah, I'm, I it mean, it's weird. a good movie, but it's like, well, I don't yeah. know how to feel about this, you know? Right. And I hated Shampoo, so that turned me off of him as well. I was like, eh, it's not my jam. Shampoo was, because I'm not a Beatty guy. I'm not really a Beatty guy, you know? I, I, do, I do like Bugsy. I'm just not a Warren Beatty guy most of the time. I've never seen Reds. I, oh, I just, I, but, you know, Reds is guy. another one I watched a lot as a kid. I haven't seen it. I think I watched it once as an adult. Yeah. Um, He's just too uh, cocky. He's too cocky for me. <laughs> Um, speaking of speaking of um, uh, Beatty, I, I looked at what Bob Jones's uh, credits were. Mm. And it's just man. So he's the editor on Mad 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 World. Oh, Guess yeah. who's coming to dinner? Love Story. And then speaking of Warren Beatty, Heaven Can Wait and Bullworth. <laughs> Bullworth. Yeah. Wow. And he also cut Days of Thunder. Ah, uh, yeah. So so this guy. I mean, what a weird career to be an <laughs> Academy Award winning screenwriter and a great editor on these other i mean like that's a really interesting guy shout um, out the days of thunder all right yeah <laughs> um would you like to get into the film uh let's do it <laughs> there's so much in oh, wait, your tone. wait yeah. yes yes i would like to get into the film steve <laughs> <laughs> we fade in on a figure in a bed and there is a tv playing and that's the kind of tv we had mm-hmm. in my house ditto, ditto. Um, and w- one of the things we're going to see a lot, there's going to be TV in the background of 50% of the shots in the movie, 70% of the shots in the movie. Mm. Every single TV show was picked for a reason. Yeah. And sure. almost all of this was picked ahead of time. Is So so there's two ways to do TV. The easy way is that you take a green screen, you take some green uh paper and you, you block TV, off sorry sorry you mean tv on camera like when you're yes. filming television gotcha yes. sorry yeah, thank you for clarifying that no no, so no you, st- you stick some green paper in the front of the tv screen and now you have an empty space and you can sit put any tv show you want into it and post um this gets harder when you have moving cameras before you had computer controlled cameras but but that's one way to do it and the other way to do it is shoot it live but tv uh, you probably know this from doing the dumb DVD job that I did. Yeah. Uh, TV runs at 29.97 frames a second in old NTSC TV. Films at 24 frames per second. If you just film a TV screen, it won't. the frame rates won't match up. And so the TV will look really weird and it'll blink in and out and it'll stutter and it'll, it'll yeah. look terrible. So you have to redo the TV at 24 frames a second to match it. So they had to go through pick every single show that they wanted remaster them in 24 frames a second to be able to play them on the TV at the right frame rate. Uh-huh. And um, it's another thing that has never, I don't know if we've talked much about on the cinephiles, but daytime light looks different from uh, incandescent light from like light bulbs. Uh-huh. Daytime light is blue and light bulbs are kind of yellow, orange, gold. And so whenever you're shooting, you have to balance for daytime light and um, what they call tungsten. Uh, right. which is for light bulbs. And so if you're shooting in a room with windows, so there's blue light coming in from outside and you have tungsten lights inside, either mm-hmm. you make your tungsten lights blue. So everything matches the blue light coming in from outside, or you put uh, orange gels on all the windows. So it turns the blue light coming in from the sun more gold. So everything matches. Otherwise mm-hmm. it won't work. Okay. They had to decide in advance whether or not the TV light would match daytime or tungsten. 
So they wow. had to recolor correct every single TV show in both ways. So they had a blue-ish version of it and a goldish <laughs> version of it in order Jesus. for so for every single TV show you see, they had to redo the frame rate. They had to do two versions depending on the lighting source, and they planned it all in advance. Wow. Yeah. Good God Almighty, bud. It's a lot. Okay. It's a lot. Yes. Yeah. That's a lot. Um, and we see this guy get up. He's in some beautiful yellow silk pajamas. And we spend a long time just watching what he does. You know, uh, he's in the garden, still in the beautiful pajamas. And there's plants everywhere. And there's another TV. And there's, <laughs> you know, classical music and orchestra. We see a beautiful old car that has flat white wall tires. And I think what you're doing is you're going, what is this? Like the world he's in seems very old fashioned, except for the TVs. Right. And what this world also, we see that furniture is covered over with sheets. There's like a weird deadly quality. Like, like this is a, a world out of another time feeling. Mm -hmm. And he's sitting at the table and in comes Louise. Good morning, Louise. And the wheeze is the African-American maid who mm-hmm. seems as if the only other person that he speaks to. He's dead, yet. The old man's dead. And this is our first time hearing how he reacts to things. And he says. I see. And as she tells him about this old man dying, he just keeps watching TV. Mm-hmm. And Louise is having an emotional reaction. Oh, Lord. What a morning. Yes, Louise. It looks like it's going to snow. <laughs> and she loses Donna. Is that all you got to say? That old man is lying up there, dead as hell. And it just don't make any difference to you. And it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Or maybe there's the tiniest of reactions. What? So you just watched this for the first time. What are yeah. you thinking about this movie at this point? I, I immediately think Forrest Gump. Yeah. I, I immediately think, okay, what are we in for here? Because I, I, I purposely didn't know what I was walking into. I didn't read any reviews, didn't read any synopsis. I'd always heard about the movie and that he was this guy who was like a simple guy about and you know, kind of finds himself in these situations. But I was surprised at how devoid of emotion he was. So I'm like, okay, is this... Is this a person who is somehow uh, uh, mentally deficient? Is this a person who is, uh, are we going to find out what his condition is? Um, that's what I was thinking in this moment. Yeah. I, it's so funny you mentioned Forrest Gump's because the first thought that came into my head is, man, Forrest Gump would w- run circles around Chauncey Gardner. Oh, yeah, that's not true. Literally, not just because he's a great runner. <laughs> but For, Forrest Gump is not that smart, <clears throat> but is a fully realized human. Yes. With emotions and, and, and he's, you know, he, he's a real character. Yeah. And Chauncey Gardner or Chance is an emptiness. Mm-hmm. He is a walking nothing. So she yells at him and then she feels bad because what, what, what are you yelling at this person for? Right. He, he right. is what he is. Mm-hmm. And Chance goes back to watching Captain Kangaroo. Later we see him in this beautiful suit. And we see more sort of remnants of this old world. There's a really old-fashioned phone. There's more mm-hmm. uh, furniture that's covered up. And he goes up to see the old man. And he looks at the body. And he touches the forehead. And it, I'm watching it. I watched it carefully to go, is there anything there? Is yeah. he having any emotional reaction to this at all? Right. 
and and maybe I'm doing what everybody in this movie is doing, which is inventing things in him that aren't actually there. Right. It's beautifully, beautifully filmed, by the way. This is Caleb Deschanel, who we've hmm. done a lot of his films. This is his third feature. So he made more American graffiti he shot. Then he shot The Black Stallion, which we talked about years ago on The Cinephiles. Yeah. And this is the same year as The Black Stallion. Right. Uh, 79. Yes. Yeah. You're right. Yep. So he comes on with a couple of really two big movies in a row. Mm-hmm. His inspiration, how he wanted to shoot this was Gordon Willis and The Godfather. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and what he what the goal was, was that he and Al Ashby wanted to make every single shot as simple as possible. Mm-hmm. So it's almost always at eye level. There's not a ton of camera moves. It's very, very simple. And they only used with, I think, only two exceptions, two lenses. This either shot on a 40 millimeter lens or a 75 millimeter lens. That's crazy mm-hmm. to only use two lenses for an entire film. And he just sits there watching TV in the room with the dead body of the old man. If you saw this mm-hmm. and saw Dr. Strangelove, would you know that any of these are the same people? Uh, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I, it seemed, you know, we've seen at this point, comedians do drama really, really well. So and sellers, you could argue, is one of the first that kind of shows you mm. how he can re- deliver a restrained performance. Um, which eventually got nominated for an Oscar. So um, just showing you that it can be done. But I was just blown away by the even tone of his performance through the whole movie. They're so different because those three characters in Strange Love are almost unrecognizable to each other. Mm -hmm. And then this guy is so, you know, you think there's so much emotion in the president, in Strange Love, and in the army colonel or the RAF, RAF colonel. And this guy is, again, it's nothing. And one of the things that people would say about uh, Sellers is that he could be all these people because there wasn't anything in him. He, well, he said he had, that. Yeah. yeah. I, I was reading a review after I watched the movie because I really wanted to dive more into the an analysis of it. Roger Ebert said, uh, Roger Ebert revealed during his, his review of the movie that uh, Peter Sellers said to him once, I don't know who I am, which is why I've always wanted to play this character because this this is essentially something that I feel. I don't know who I am as a person when I'm not doing these characters. Um, And, you know, Elizabeth Moss once said this about Fred Armisen after the divorce Mm. with him. Mm. She said everyone loves him for all the characters he displays. The problem is the greatest character he's ever portrayed is trying to be a human being. So in essence, saying that he's got no inner life other than the characters he's creating. Um, and so that's a fascinating situation that you, you look at some comedians really do live through the characters that they create. They are inhabiting this life and they have no real other thing that kind of occupies their time other than thinking about what's the next thing they can create, which is a blessing and a curse. I imagine the producer uh, Brownsburg has a story that, he went to dinner and I don't, it was a group of people with Peter Sellers. And he yeah. said that Peter Sellers had them in stitches from the beginning of the meal to the end, oh, just sure. one character after another, one voice after another. And they just laughed so much. And then the evening was ending and he said, good night. And then he left and they realized after he had gone, like, 
Did we ever see Peter Sellers? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Some people are like that. I'm sure. And, I'm sure many people had those experiences with Robin Williams. Well, I, what <laughs> I've heard about Robin Williams is that he was not. Ex- he was not like that when he yeah. when, when yeah. He, he was this extremely quiet, extremely shy oh. person. When you okay. met him out of those circumstances, gotcha. that he was very soft spoken and like that. Mm-hmm. But then, as soon as he turned it on, it was on. It was full. On. You know, it, it was full on. Right, right. And Chance, everything things he sees in the TV, that's how he learns how to behave. So he sees this guy, and it's like an old, you know, Southern slave movie. And there's this old African American gentleman who tips his hat, and then he's tipping his hat, and he sees yeah. Louise, and he tips his hat to her because that's what he sees to do. And she says, "I'm gonna go now, Chance." Yes. And this moment, you go like, "Oh my God, what's about to happen?" And she right. says, "You're going to need somebody." You ought to find yourself a lady, Chance. Guess it ought to be an old lady. You ain't gonna do a young one any good. Not with that little thing of yours. Because there's something about him and sex that where it's going to be yeah. very unclear. Yeah. And she kisses him and says goodbye and walks away. And the look on Chance's face of just, again, it's almost mm-hmm. like he's having an emotion. Yeah. Almost. Almost. It's later and, and we hear people coming and in come this man and a woman. They hear the TV and they find Chance watching TV, of course. By the way, on the TV is the president of the United States, uh, who's played by Jack Warden. And we see him shaking hands where you do the two-hand handshake. And you see Chance practicing that two-hand handshake. Mm. Uh, And in comes these two people and ends up that they are the law firm that represents this house. And that the old man who died was like an old partner who retired decades ago from this law firm. And they did not expect to see this guy here. Are you waiting for someone? An appointment? Yes. Louise will bring me my lunch. And you just go, oh, he didn't process that she left. Mm -hmm. He doesn't understand that his life is over. And they think he's joking. All kidding aside, Mr. Chance, may I ask just what you're doing here? I live here. They go, look, we've got records of everybody who's ever employed in this house. There's never been a gardener here. The the last guy, no no one's been employed here since 1933. And the last person who's employed was some guy that came in a decade or two ago to lay some bricks. And and, And that, Chance remembers. I remember Joe. He was very fat, had short hair, and showed me pictures from a funny little book. Some pictures? Yes, of men and women. She gives this very weird laugh. <laughs> and they're looking at him going, trying to figure out, who is this guy? Yeah, yeah. And they ask, how long have you lived here? Ever since I can remember. Ever since I was a child, I've worked in this garden. How old is Chance, would you say? Uh, maybe in his 50s? Yeah, so for 50 hair. years, my understanding is he never left this house. Yeah. Do you think the old man had a son with some woman? The woman ran off. He kept the kid. The kid was slow or whatever you want to describe the condition of Chance the Gardener. And the African-American woman basically raised him, which is why she knew the size of his penis. She probably washed him for many, many years, probably dressed him for many, many years until he could actually dress himself. And sure had seen and I'm sure had seen his penis or whatever. And so that's why she could make that comment. 
And so him saying, I've been here for the, you know, since as far as I can remember, to him, this is a very, very simple life uh, and a life he's enjoyed living and a life he was blissfully living, to be honest with you, because he was being catered to and he was allowed to do something he loved to do, which was tend the garden and it was being fed every day by Louis. So there was nothing he needed and he had the old man's clothes to wear. So there was nothing that he needed. Everything was provided to him and he enjoyed what was provided to him. So you could argue we've, we're always saying to people philosophically, like, appreciate what you have. Stop, you know, stop thinking about what you don't have or what you want to get and take a moment to appreciate what you have. This is literally a person living in that bliss forever. Like this, he appreciates everything he has and he enjoys everything he has and he doesn't aspire for more, you know. So <clears throat> there's only the slightest bit more detail in the book. And the only oh. thing that it says in the book is that. There was a woman who was his mother Mm. who also had some sort of mental handicaps Ah, of some kind, and she died. Okay, but it doesn't say why he's here. My my suspicion is it's what you said is that he's actually the son of the old man, right? You know, and that maybe the old man had this affair or with you know maybe she was a prostitute or who knows? Yeah, and this this was the issue of that event. But he was too embarrassed because of his position in society to have anyone ever see this kid. So he's basically kept him as a prisoner, you know, a, a well-kept prisoner working yeah. in the garden. It's so bizarre yeah. what, what has happened. And what, But what you say is totally true is that one of the things that people pick up from Chance the Gardener is that he is just content yeah, and self-contained. And right now, our attorneys are trying to figure out who this guy is, and he shows them to his room and that he gets to wear all the old man's suits because they're the same size and shows them his bathtub and his toilet and his sink and his closet. And, and they're starting to clue into the fact that maybe this guy has been living here. Mm-hmm. And rather than show any care for this human in any way, they just want to know, are you going to make some kind of claim against the deceased estates? Garden is a healthy one, Thomas. I, 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 I have no claim. I see. Would you be willing to sign a paper to that effect? I don't know how to sign, Thomas. And so during this scene, we learn he's never left the house. We also learn he's never been in a car. We learn he can't read or write. We learn he's never been to a doctor, never been to a dentist. That the the world of this guy is so small. Very well, Mr. Chance. I have no alternative but to inform you that this house is now closed. If indeed you have resided here, you have no legal right to remain. You'll have to move out by, let's say, noon tomorrow. I don't understand move out. And they say, call me or have your attorney call me. And one of the things I can't quite decide, it's clear that this guy, Thomas, is a jerk. Mm-hmm. You know, like he did, all he wants to do is get, you know, the best deal on this estate. And this right. guy is a problem for him. So he wants to get rid of him. I can't tell what the woman thinks of this situation. I feel like she's in both worlds in that she has some sympathy for chance, but she's also doing her job. So and nothing's been resolved yet. So I don't think she's come down one way or another. And I think the fact that she offers her hand where mm. Chance has to offer his, his hand when they're saying goodbye, I think kind of betrays what side of the fence she's on. But I, I, she doesn't make a statement one way or another. No. So, but you sense there's a little more sympathy from her portrayal from what the actress is doing in those in those scenes. And, and by the way, when he does shake their hands, he does that 
presidential yeah. two-handed handshake. Yeah. And they're out. So let me stop for a minute, Steve. Yes, Steve, Stephen Morris. Let me ask you a question, because this is considered a classic. So many of these intelligentsia film critics fall all over themselves fawning about this film. But if he's a man who's watched television, how does he not understand the concepts that are being presented to him in his life as he's because he must have seen shows where people are moving out, where people change residences, where people uh, move, period. He must have seen shows growing up in his 50 years where that is a plot line in a show. So uh, I would be very, very surprised to believe. I had a a tough time believing that some of the stuff he was so foreign to or had no idea about for a person who's watched television for 50 years. I think any latchkey kid will tell you most of the concepts you conceive of about the world are from watching television. So it would shock me that he's unaware of these things, even with his quote unquote mentally deficient condition. So I have a couple of different answers. And okay. The, the, but the most important one is that I think the only way to understand this movie is that it's a fable. Oh, this, that's great. That's great, actually. This okay. isn't real. I mean, right. like, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. Especially when we get to that ending. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is he's how, exactly how dumb he is, is is a real tough question. Yeah, but, true. <laughs> but it is certainly far dumber than anyone other than Louise thinks. Like, the Louise is the only one. Yeah. I mean, you know, and so I don't think he thinks that the world is real or I don't think he thinks Mm. that the TV world is real. The only world is this house. Yeah. Everything else is just a show. But I'll go back to the first thing. It's a fable. There's this person who doesn't understand the world and he packs up. We have Hollywood squares in the background with Paul Lind in the center (laughs) square. Love Paul Lind. (laughs) He's so funny. (laughs) By the way, it's so funny. All of the obviously gay men Oh my God. Humor in the world that nobody <laughs> knew, nobody understood what was going on. We lived in a world, ladies and gentlemen, where Liberace and Paul Lynn were considered straight. Paul Lynn literally had a sitcom where he was married with kids in the show. It's just crazy. Um, and for those of you who are questioning us, did you know George Michael was gay when he first came out? I bet a lot of you did. So it's like these are these things that you just don't know in the moment when it's happening and it's our awakening. As, as a society about these things. So you make excellent points, Steve. <laughs> My understanding is that, that that Liberace, there's some year in the 50s where Liberace received more unsolicited marriage proposals than Elvis. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and he's dressed beautifully. He has an old-fashioned suitcase, a beautiful yeah. old hat, and he's walking slowly to the door, and we're hearing the score and this mystical Mm. music and he kind of peeks through the curtains and then we start to hear some music that's just a bit funkier and Mm -hmm. we go from this quiet extremely old-fashioned really what we see is probably pretty expensive fancy house yeah and he opens the door and steps out into the world yeah this i so remembered perfectly (laughs) what happens here because it is shocking. It is the 70s. It is a really run to what this was a fancy neighborhood 50 years ago and now is a completely run down neighborhood. And the music is a funky, jazzy version of the Zarathustra from 2001 A Space Odyssey. It is awesome. <laughs> Thank you.
by the way, the reason they chose this piece of music is that Hal Ashby was like, this is like he's going out into space. <laughs> That's a great, great point. Wow. The contrast between this guy in this really old fashioned suit walking through this neighborhood is totally cr- And he doesn't understand anything that he sees. Mm-hmm. He walks through a crowd and an and a African-American woman walks by him and he says, Excuse me, I'm very hungry. Could you give me some lunch? Because he thinks she's Louise or he thinks all African-American women bring food or, mm-hmm. you know, bring and it's, food, it's, yeah. it's funny the way, I mean, this is a 40-year-old movie. And so its way of dealing with race is different from maybe how we would deal with it. Mm-hmm. But there's a line later on. Yes. <laughs> That I think is so good about this issue that we'll get to a little later. It's a universal line for sure. He walks up to some young African-American kids who look fairly tough and and says, Could you please tell me where I can find a garden to work in? A garden? There is much to be done during the winter. I should start the seeds for the spring and work the soil. Oh, shit. And they just go off on him. Who sent you here, boy? Did that chicken shit asshole Raphael send you, boy? No. Mr. Thomas Franklin told me I must leave the old man's house. He's dead, you know. I don't know why they would think that this white guy dressed in this fancy suit was sent by <laughs> Raphael. And at one point, they pull it, he pulls a switchblade on him. Yeah. And do you remember what Chance does? He pulls out his remote control. Pulls yeah. out his remote control to try to change the channel. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he thinks that reality is real. Well, and also, this is his way to reacting to situations that he doesn't want to be in. Remember, before he leaves that house, Steve, we watched him numerous times change the channel, change the channel in the middle of scenes, yeah. in the middle of shows. He's changing the channel because if he doesn't want to watch something, he changes the channel. So when this guy pulls a switchblade on him, his mind immediately, as a defense mechanism, pulls out the remote control to change the channel. He doesn't want to be in this situation anymore. That's how his thinking works. You know? Yeah. So we discover as he walks around that we're in Washington, D.C., yeah. and he sees a tree, and he goes to a policeman and says, That tree is very sick. It needs care. And the policeman takes it in and basically, I think, looks at this fancy suit and says, yes, sir, I'll report it right away. Right. And I think this is a clue of where this movie is going to go, mm-hmm. which is people look at a, a, a middle-aged white guy in a fancy suit and go, this is an important person. Yeah. Yeah. So, so do you, let me, well, let me ask though, is that what's happening or is the police placating a crazy person? No, I think, uh, I think that's what's happening. I think you're right. I think it's, it's Hal Ashby laying the seed for what's going to come later, that if you are white, middle-aged, and you dress very well, um, most people in society are going to default to your opinion on something or at least cater to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great mm. shot, high angle of him walking down the center medium of the street, oh, yeah. you know, towards the city. And then he sees himself on TV. Because <laughs> there's some TV store that has a video camera and is projecting the image and a big image on a TV. Yeah. I have a perfect memory of when I first saw myself on a video camera. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, because it was they didn't exist when you and I were kids. True. True. You know, and it was at the Lawrence Hall of Science, which was like a science museum in Berkeley. 
And there was a video camera and I saw a black and white image of myself on a TV and all the kids, it's like a school field trip or something. Right. We're all like walking up and looking at it and walking out of it and walking. Cause it was an amazing thing to see yourself on TV. <laughs> I was probably seven or eight. <laughs> and cool. I love that. Then he takes out the remote and tries to change his channel. Mm-hmm. Cause he brings his remote with him and right. he's backing away to change the way the shot looks. And he backs into the street. And he gets hit by a car. Car backs up, traps him between another car. It's a limo. Uh, The chauffeur runs out, really concerned. And then the passenger in the car comes out, and it is Shirley MacLaine. What do you think of her in this movie? uh, Here's what I'll say overall. I enjoyed Shirley MacLaine in the movie. This is probably the prettiest I've ever seen her in any of the films she's ever been. I've never been a, you know, I've never thought Shirley MacLaine... She was never my cup of tea, how I say this, uh, but I thought she was absolutely uh, radiant and very pretty in this movie. Um, I think her performance is great. Uh, the sex stuff bothers me because I think it's a subplot you never, you shouldn't have had in this movie. But she is a master actress and delivers it well. Um, so I enjoy her in the movie. She's a great ray of light in the film. I actually, it's so funny. I can't think of a movie where she's not good. She, she she's always good. Yeah, she's never been and someone I've followed. But right. whether it's like terms of endearment or uh, her performance is in postcards from the edge, mm. you know, as the yeah. Debbie Reynolds character is amazing. Like still Magnolias. She, she's yeah, she's she's always good. Um, Even guarding Tess, she's good, Steve. Oh, that's right. I entirely <laughs> forgot about that movie. Um, and and she invites him into the car. And they're going to head off to the emergency room. And she's trying to smooth over a very complicated situation. Her fancy chauffeur just hit, as you said, a well-dressed, wealthy-looking white guy Mm -hmm. with the limousine. And she is treating him like one of them. Is your leg feeling any better? No, it isn't. By the way, the the way they shoot this, remember I said they only use 40 millimeter and 75 millimeter lens. Right. Normally, when you shoot inside a car you shoot a wider lens because you don't have a lot of space. And so you want to have a very wide image so you can see both people in a two shot and you want to be, you're pretty close. So it's a a wider lens, pretty close. They shot this Mm -hmm. with a 75 millimeter lens. So this is a car cut in half Mm. with just the back seat because the 75 millimeter lens in order to have a two shot has to be really far away. Mm. Um, And it, it just, it's a totally different way of shooting the scene. It's a process shot. They're not really driving, obviously. Right. And then as he looks around out the window of the car, because remember, he's never been in a car before. Right. He says, this is just like television. Only you can see much further. <laughs> what, what's so I think Peter Sellers performance is amazing. Hmm. And if you just watch him, there's so many little things going on. And then you watch everyone else around him projecting their expectations onto him of what he is. You know, why don't you come to our house and we could take care of you there. Your house? Mm -hmm. My husband's been very ill. The doctor and the nurses are staying with us. Hospitals can be so impersonal. So she talks to her assistant and the chauffeur and they're going to head that way. She offers him a drink. He says yes. And all of a sudden we're going as she pulls out some brandy or something. (laughs) I don't know that he's ever had alcohol before. Yeah. And he takes a drink right as she asks his name and he coughs and tries to get out Chance the Gardener. And she yeah. hears Chauncey Gardner. 
Mr. Chauncey Gardner. And suddenly he has a new name. Yep. Are you related to Basil and Perdita Gardner? <laughs> no, Basil and Perdita. <laughs> those are words that only certain kinds of people <laughs> would have those kinds of names. No, I'm not related to Basil and Perdita. Oh, well, they are such a wonderful couple. And she's looking at him, trying to figure him out. And he is watching TV. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the first step of placing, even though he's not related to Basil and Perdita, she's placed him in a certain class of people. Mm-hmm. We get to this estate. This place is crazy. Yeah. It massive. is. And I had to look up what it is. This is the, uh, the Biltmore estate in Nashville, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the largest uh, private residence in the country. Yeah. It was built by George Vanderbilt between 1889 and 1895. So my house is about 1,800 square feet. Mm-hmm. It's plenty of room. I don't need any more space. I, this house is 178,926 square feet. Wow. <laughs> and since it's Vanderbilt, isn't Anderson Cooper connected to the Vanderbilt because his mom, one of the Vanderbilts. And so I wonder if he's been on this estate. I don't know. I didn't know that he was related to the Vanderbilts. Yeah. I think he's, his mom is, is one of the Vanderbilts. I think, let me that's look so, it up as you talk, as you, that's so weird. Cause there's so many, I'll say white guys in media who yeah. are connected to these huge fortunes. Yep. Tucker as well. Tucker. Yeah. Mom. Yeah, yeah. She, uh, his mom. He's the younger son of writer White Emery Cooper and heiress Gloria Vanderbilt. So wow. yeah, yeah. So his maternal grandparents were the millionaire equestrian Reginald Claypool Vanderbilt of the Vanderbilt family. So he might have grown up or been on this estate many, many times in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, uh, that's so crazy. <laughs> I wonder. I, I really wonder. I'm sure. I mean, he, Anderson Cooper is a very famous person who is on yeah. big TV shows and I assume gets paid a lot of money. I wonder what he does with it. You know, like uh, if you're already an heir to the Vanderbilt fortune, yeah, they get to the front of the estate and there's all these servants waiting with uh, umbrellas. They got a wheelchair for him and they kind of lift him up the stairs of the wheelchair. And he just smiling away because, because this is like a fun ride, yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, they take him to an elevator and he's in the elevator with a servant and he says, and this is this is exactly what we're going to see throughout the whole movie. I've never been in one of these before. And of course, he's saying, I've never been in an elevator before. But the guy he hears, I've never been in a wheelchair before. Yeah. And then we have a conversation that has two different meanings. He says, it's one of Mr. Rand since he's been ill. And Chance, or now Chauncey, thinks that he's talking that the elev- about the elevator. So he mm-hmm. says, does it have a television? And the guy thinks he's making a joke and goes, no, but Mr. Rand has one with an electric motor. And that way he can get around by himself. And Chauncey's going, the elevator has an electric motor and he can get around by trying to figure that out. Right. Um, And and then Chauncey says, how long do we stay here? And he means, how long am I going to be in this little room? Mm -hmm. And the guy thinks he means, how long am I going to be in the wheelchair? Yeah. We're with the doctor, Richard Desart. Who's great. I love Richard Desart. Yeah, he's fantastic. Saying elsewhere or L.A. Law? What is Richard Desart? L.A. Law? I think he's L.A. Law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I remember that. Yeah. Chauncey is in his underwear getting a shot. And I love this line. It did hurt. 
because what I love about the line is right before we came into the scene, the doctor probably said, no, this isn't going to hurt a bit. It gave yeah. him the shot because it did hurt. <laughs> I wonder if, you know, and maybe I'm crazy, but I wonder if, if John Favreau, who is a watcher of these films and classic films, I wonder if that scene in Elf where he's getting the prick mm. after he says, I wonder if that's a slight homage to this scene. Because you're right. That little, it did hurt. is such a great delivery by Peter Sellers that stays with you with all the mania going on in that moment. Um, and the doctor is kind of asking the same question that the lawyers asked. Hmm. Are you planning on making any sort of claim against the Rands? <laughs> claim. That's what Thomas asked me. Who's Thomas? Thomas Franklin. He's an attorney. An attorney? So now it's like, oh, you have an attorney and you are maybe going to make a claim. And then he says, no, there's no need for claim. I don't even know what they look like, mm -hmm. which the doctor thinks he's joking. Yeah. And Chauncey finds a remote and turns on a TV. <laughs> Let's meet Ben Rand, Melvin Douglas. Oh. He's one of these actors, Steve, that I feel like I've seen in a million things. Yet when I went through his resume, I've seen maybe two or three things he's ever done. But he just has this feeling of like old Hollywood, man. And yeah. he is so good and tender and uh, so interesting in the movie as a character and an actor. What I think is so interesting about him, and this is what's weird about this movie, is mm. he's totally likable. Yes. You, you really, he seems yes. genuine and connected and mm -hmm. caring and smart and interesting. And then when you, th the more you think about him, <laughs> he is probably a wealthy, uncaring, totally disconnected, uh, cutthroat businessman elite. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, cause that eulogy at the end when he says, well, I didn't much care for the poor. I didn't have use for them. But then again, they didn't have use for me. That's an interesting thing. So yes, I'm sure very cutthroat and elite in business, but I wonder if, cause I mean, especially someone like Shirley McLean, would she gravitate to someone like this? She seems like she has a really good heart, uh, even though she's kind of lost herself uh, in this moment or in this time. So you wonder if maybe there's a little bit more altruism to him than you might think. But who knows? You're well, right. But here's the thing. I think everything that I felt about who he is is completely true. Yeah. He does care about Shirley MacLaine. He does. He is a genuine, interesting, kind person. Yeah. But that doesn't mean the other stuff in the business world and his effect on the world isn't also true. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Good point. Yep. Absolutely. Like, uh, and this is like, you know, it's funny, this idea of privilege was not, I mean, people, we use the word privilege and someone mm -hmm. was privileged, but we didn't use it in quite the way we're using it today. Right. But like, you can go around and be a perfectly nice, rich person, yeah. nice with your friends and considerate and kind, and still live in a world of total privilege and disconnection from the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and have all these and have no problem with, I mean, the, the guy's got, you know, how many hundreds of servants in this place yeah he's turned his bedroom into a private hospital yes and sure. we hear, hear a little bit of conversation about the accident and about mr chauncey gardner and we decide oh let's have dinner and i love that he calls to the nurse that he wants fresh blood for dinner <laughs> <laughs> totally makes me think of mr burns uh the doctor comes and finds uh eve out on the balcony and she asks about chauncey don't worry he might be a breath of fresh air and you could see Eve already contemplating about this guy. He is different, isn't he? 
You know, he's very um, intense. <laughs> and the doctor says, perhaps, because right from the beginning, he is the person who is going, wait, who is this guy? Yeah, right. He's um, questions, yeah. Uh, we have another elevator joke, which now the servant thinks that this is a really funny guy because <laughs> he says this is a very small room and the servant thinks that he's making a joke, which he's yeah. not. They roll Chauncey wearing his boxers in the wheelchair to meet uh, Ben Gardner. Mm-hmm. By the way, the first Hal Ashby's first choice to play this role was Burt Lancaster. Oh, man. <sighs> but he would have stolen the movie, Steve. He would have stolen the movie. That's too much star power. And he's he's so powerful, Lancaster. You know yeah. what I mean? Like so I don't know that he could play this frailty and and gentleness the way that <laughs> Douglas does. Peter Sellers and Melvin Douglas served in World War II together in Burma. Wow. So they knew each other then. Shut the, are they correlative in age? I think so. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, I didn't look up what their ages was, but, you know, Mm. I mean, they couldn't be too far apart. And apparently they reminisced a lot on the set. It was the only time, from my understanding, Peter Sellers was in character as Chance the Gardener for the entire shoot. Yeah. Except chatting with Melvin Douglas, it sounds like. Wow. Um, Yeah. Uh, 24 years apart. Maybe Melvin, um, of course, it wasn't, it wasn't like it was in nowadays, we were 18, like there was a wide range. So maybe Melvin sure. was higher rank for sure. Yeah. Maybe he was an officer or something. You must be very ill. Aplastic alemia, Mr. Gardner, aplastic alemia. The bone marrow doesn't supply enough red blood cells. Not a damn thing they can do about it. And right from the beginning, Chance does not respond to someone saying I'm dying the way people normally respond because people normally say platitudes, you know, Oh, I'm so sorry. And Oh, I'm, you know, I'm sure you'll be okay. And maybe they'll find some way to help you. And, you know, you've been around when people are trying to be sympathetic and as well intentioned as it might be, it doesn't always help. No. And because chance doesn't respond that way and just kind of goes, I see. Melvin Douglas goes, feels better around this guy because he feels like this guy's not bullshitting him. Yeah. There's also, because, because chance is getting an x-ray, there's an African-American man there who's the, the doctor or x-ray technician. And he asked, do you know Raphael? No, sir. I don't believe I do. Because he only has had the most limited experiences with African-Americans. They either bring you your food or they have a message for Raphael. That's it. That's all he knows. I also think it's a, a shot at the racist idea that all black people know each other, right? Exactly. And, totally. And, and it's brilliantly subtle shot. Because, yeah, initially on the surface, you'd be like, oh, this is kind of uncomfortable. But actually, the message is that this is what it looks like when you hear a, a white person ask a black person if they know another black person. Because the inherent foundational belief in that moment is all black people know each other, don't they? And so yeah. it's just that kind of, which is racist. So when you dig deeper, these moments actually carry more weight than you think. Well, that's what this, I, I think because this movie is so simple, the main mm. character is so simple, just like everybody is putting their interpretations on chance and yeah. what he really means, which isn't what he means. I think we could do that with the whole movie oh, because, yeah. you know, this whole movie could be interpreted like a whole bunch of different ways. Yeah. By the way, I had to look it up. Raphael, who's an angel, his he was an angel of healing. Oh, 
Oh, you know? interesting. Okay. We go to dinner, and this is one of the few times that they're using a different lens. We're in this high angle shot, and it's a mm-hmm. wider lens, 25, 29 millimeter, because that's the only way they could fit in this place. And this is all shot at this, this estate. There's these three giant fireplaces. I mean, it's absolutely wow. crazy. Yeah. They're sitting at this table that must seat, you know, 40 people. There's 12 servants standing around to serve them food. And and again, like if if you or I were in this environment, mm. you and I would be like looking around and mm-hmm. like and I would be stressed. I assume, you know, about am I behaving right and like how many forks <laughs> do I have? And but but chance doesn't have any of that reaction, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. makes you go, he must be comfortable in this kind of environment. Right. It reinforces that he's one of them. Well, I do hope your injury won't prevent you from attending to business, Mr. Gardner. You need a secretary? No, thank you. My house was shut down. Which is the exact truth. The house he lived in was shut down. But they hear his house must be his business. Mm -hmm. So he must have, because what we find out is we're in the middle of like a depression or a recession. And they're like, oh, your business. You mean your business was shut down? Yes. Shut down and closed by the attorneys. What did I tell you? That's exactly what I mean. The businessman today is at the mercy of kid lawyers from the SEC. And so now Ben is connecting with him as a businessman who has to deal with these lawyers and all of this government red tape. And, you know, he's created who he thinks Chauncey is. So then, what are your plans, Chauncey? Well, I... I would like to work in your garden. Which he means, literally, I want a job working in your garden. And what Ben is interpreting this is, I'm a huge businessman. He wants to work at my business. Mm-hmm. And this is the key thing. People are going to think that he's speaking in metaphor mm-hmm. when he's speaking the literal truth. He is talking about being a good gardener, a literal gardener. Mm-hmm. But Ben can't believe that this man in this nice suit, it would never occur to him that he's actually a gardener. So therefore, this must be a metaphor for being a businessman. And Ben says, Yeah, well, isn't that what any businessman is? A gardener. He works on flinty soil to make it productive. He, He waters it with the sweat of his own brow, who makes a thing of value for his family, and for the community. Yes, indeed, Chauncey. A productive businessman is a laborer in the vineyard. <laughs> I think this reveals what he sees the role of a businessman, how he casts mm. a businessman in our society. As a, as a gardener, in essence, tending to the things that are growing, make sure they're making sure the business is healthy, making sure it serves people, make sure it's a good, strong business with a good, a good foundation that lasts for a long time. Yeah, I could see that. I could uh, see that. And I think it's even more than that because I think mm. it's, it's the businessman is the backbone of America. I think uh, that's what he's saying. I sure. think he's saying, and that the businessman is heroic, mm-hmm. you know, works with the labor of his own hands, the sweat of his brow, it makes a thing of value for himself and the community. Mm. How often have you heard things framed as what's good for big business is good for America? Yeah. You know, this is like, this is a statement about trickle down economics in yeah. a weird way, you know, like, point. yeah. And of course chance, cause he's a moron <laughs> doesn't understand metaphor. Right. So he says, I know exactly what you mean, Ben. 
The garden that I left was such a place. But I don't have that anymore. All I have left is the room upstairs. By which he means literally the room he's sleeping in in their house. That's all he has. That's literally all he has in the world. But Ben, who is facing his own death, thinks that he's referring to heaven mm-hmm. and death. Oh, come on now. Wait a minute, Chauncey. You've got your health. For God's sake, man, you can't let those bastards get you down. you got to fight. I don't want to hear any more from you about that room upstairs. That's where I'm going. Too damn soon. <laughs> Again, this is all the misunderstandings. Yeah. It's a very pleasant room, Ben. To which he means that nice room you have for me upstairs, but Ben takes as it's it's going to be okay when you die. Right. A reassurance that he needs. We're in the billiard room. Ben and Chauncey are sitting in their wheelchairs. Ben's lighting a cigar. Chauncey's trying to figure out what to do with the cigar, which nobody, just watch all of Peter Sellers' business is really funny. Uh, And Ben is having a conversation about business and all the things that are happening in the world. And he talks about big kind of political plans he has and asks Chauncey if he has any ideas on the subject, to which he replies, no. Ben takes that to be, this is a wise man who won't commit himself too early to a thing rather than, no, he doesn't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> it reminded me, by the way, of uh, Remains of the Day and interrogating Anthony Hopkins' character oh. about all the world events that he doesn't quite understand. Right, right. I mean, the circumstances are totally different. You work on the idea. Water it. Fertilize it. I will, Ben. <laughs> and, and we're back in the elevator. And now the servant laughs in anticipation of him saying something funny. Yeah. Because he's completely pegged who he thinks this guy is. Yeah. You lifted Ben's spirits tonight to such an extent. Do you know that? Ben is very ill, Eve. I've seen that before. Are you going to leave and close his house when Ben dies? And that is a shocking thing to say because we don't talk about people dying like that. Yeah. But he's just saying what happened to him. And I think she is moved by this strange person. Yeah. So I've been trying to think about how to talk about what is happening in this film. And I think it's like... It's like a Rorschach test, you know, mm-hmm. where someone presents you with an ink blot and then you fill in what it means. Right. And everybody fills in this stuff. Like for Ben, Chauncey is this responsible businessman who's intelligent, who's uh, different in terms of death. And for Eve, he's this compassionate, uh, wise man who, yeah. you know, says the right thing that's necessary for her to accept the death of her husband, you know, and, and he's none of these things. Yeah. No, he is. He's, he's, he's whatever they're creating to help them process the world they're currently existing in. That's yeah. what he is. Like you said, he's just this blank slate in a way. Uh, and because he never really kind of chooses one side or another, um, he becomes that for them, someone they can transfer their opinions or their feelings onto or their paranoia onto and you go all the way to the end of the movie almost where those guys are carrying the casket of Rand and they're like he has another they can't find anything in his past oh that makes it so much more easier the past always gets in the way it makes it always messes up a a candidate for office it's perfect that he has no past like we can we can fill that in so it's just like ah my god yeah 
the other thing we find out is that Ben is the is the buddy of the president of the United States. Yeah. And wants Chauncey to meet the president. Ch- Chauncey walks outside of the house and the the doorman, whoever he is, goes, would you like a car, sir? And he goes, yes, I would <laughs> like a car because he thinks they're going to give him a car. And they call <laughs> up a limousine and Robert, uh, the doctor, comes out yeah. and up comes the limousine. Are you going somewhere? No. Doctor kind of looks at him, goes, oh, and again, he's figuring it out. Yeah. You're meeting the president, aren't you? Yes. Yes. I've watched him on television. Which, again, if you ask any normal person, you say, hey, John, you're going to go meet the president of the United States. You would be nervous. Like, you would have (laughs) an emotional reaction. Sure. Chance doesn't, which means he's obviously so self-contained and in touch with himself and he's not nervous and he doesn't have fear or it could be that he's an idiot. Yeah, <laughs> you know? True. And then we hear that the president is arriving. Yeah. Chauncey's with Ben. He says, you look much better today because Ben's got makeup on. Mm-hmm. I didn't want the president to think I was going to die while he was talking to me. <laughs> I see. Uh, nobody likes a dying man, Chauncey. Because nobody knows what death is. You seem to be an exception, Chauncey. That's one of the things I admire about you, your admirable balance. You seem to be a truly peaceful man. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Is he a truly peaceful man? That's my first question for you. Mm. Uh, uh, Chauncey, or Chance, rather. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I would say he's at peace. I don't know if peaceful man is the right definition, but I would say he's a guy who seems to be at peace uh, because all this t- uh, turmoil is going around around him and he seems to just, you know, walk right through it. I think he, I think he is a truly peaceful man. And mm. I think if you if you go, here's a guy who's a businessman who's obviously wealthy and successful and well-educated yeah. and whose business just collapsed. And is about to meet the president of the United States and was injured in the car accident and is with these people he's mm. never met. And he is a truly peaceful man. Well, this is an amazing person. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you you manufacture all this information about it is not true. And then pair it with the behavior that you see and you go, man, he's incredible. Yeah, I'd love to get like a and maybe there is already some analysis from like people who are hardcore into Buddhism and yoga and all of that, because he, in essence, kind of represents that. It's uh, a peaceful man who seek does not seek more or seek less, is completely happy where he's at, and does not cast meaning on things outside of him or herself. You know, like, oh, I mean, the president, he's still a human being. What's the big deal? Yes, he's accomplished all this, but he's still a human being. Yes, I'm in this massive house and I'd feel just as comfortable here as I would be in a one bedroom st- or a studio apartment. You know, it's like if you're pe- in peace where you're at, then it doesn't matter where you're at. You can uh, you are living a, a good life. You know, so you, I wonder, looking at what Chance is doing, if this is like the epitome of that. And remember, this is the 70s when this stuff was like huge and everyone was talking about it. So it's well, th- this is the th- so there's so many ways to interpret this. And and one of them is that this is about wealth and class and politics mm. and exposing things there. Another interpretation is that this is about religion. Yeah. Certainly. You know, is that chance is a Messiah character mm-hmm. 
you know, and certainly the last shot of the movie deals with that is yeah. that, you know, he is a, and he speaks in these metaphors, yeah, which actually aren't metaphors at all. And you, and people then interpret them. And we're about to get into a scene where this is exactly what's going to happen. We hear the president's arrived and Ben makes the president wait. That is how powerful this guy is. <laughs> and they're sitting in their wheelchairs and Ben stands up and everyone's like, whoa, 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 sit down. And he goes, no, no, I'm going to go see the president on my own two feet. And he puts an arm around Chauncey yeah. and they walk together. Like, so what is one of the things that Jesus is famous for doing? Yeah, walking on, uh, oh, what, uh, healing the sick, right. He exactly. heals the sick. Right. You know, and so Ben feels healed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, is, and again, is he really healing the sick? No. Yeah. But Ben feels like he is. Right. right. I love the shot of the two of them walking arm in arm with two wheelchairs behind them. It's really <laughs> funny. Of course, my wealth provided me with considerable influence. But I've tried, Chauncey. Believe me, I've tried. Uh, not to misuse that power. Oh, I've been labeled a kingmaker, but I've tried to keep myself open to the voice of the people, and I've remained honest to myself. That's the main thing. And it's like, we could interpret this as that's exactly true. He's a great guy. Yeah, or... And we, or not, <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, I think- Call the kingmaker. Oh, but I prefer to be this or that. Oh, gosh, yeah. Well, and I think he thinks that everything he's saying is true. Oh, sure. That's how he feels about himself. Absolutely, dude, yeah. And Peter Sellers, just watch his face. It's just so... He says that this is the hardest part he ever had to play. Oh, how could it not be? Yeah. The temptation there to say what he really wants to say must be out of control or, or make a sh- or take a shot or make a dig or, or just say something funny. So, yeah. Well, and, and the thing, too, like what his approach to acting was, A, he created co- characters that are totally unlike himself and usually mm-hmm. pretty big characters. And the first step for him was the voice. Yeah. He's a master of accents and dialects. And once he found the voice and how that person spoke, then he could build it from there. The right. whole point of Chance the Gardener is that he's from nowhere. He has, yeah. there is no, there's no there there. Yeah. And so trying to figure out how to take this person that has always played these complicated characters and strip everything down to nothing. Yeah. That's really hard. Agreed. Uh, they enter this amazing library and there's Jack Warden who, you know, everything we've ever done with him, he's great. Yep. He does like a two hand Handshake to Ben. It's good to see you. You look terrific. Your visitors helped to raise my spirits. And Chauncey's just standing there smiling. And they're very warm and friendly. And they sit down. And I was just watching going, do these two guys actually like each other? (laughs) I don't think they do at all. No, uh, it's a matter of um, necessity, right? He needs his money. Uh, He likes the access to power. So that's what it feels like to me. Yep, that's what it feels like to me. And there, and well, and this is the difference with Chauncey Gardner. There is no pretense in Chauncey Gardner. These right. guys are totally fake with each other. Yep. Um, and he introduces Chauncey, and Chauncey does the two-hand handshake <laughs> and does not let go. On television, Mr. President, you look much smaller. <laughs> and there's a reaction to that from Jack Warden, and he mm-hmm. still hasn't let go. 
Now, I must warn you that Chaucer's not a man to bandy words. <laughs> really? And he still hasn't let go. He's still <laughs> holding the president's hand. Well, Mr. Gardner, I'm a man who appreciates discussing a frank discussion. Would you be seated? Yes, I will. (laughs) And so now Ben has told the president how to interpret this guy. Yeah. You meet a guy who's friends with the most powerful person in the world who says, this is my dear, my good friend. And he doesn't bandy words. You're like, oh, this is a serious person that I have to take seriously. Right. By the way, Hal Ashby did not like, does not like rehearsals. Really? Okay. Yeah. Which really surprised me. He's like a, a, you know, a hippie stoner. He's yeah. like, let's just figure it out on the day and everyone will contribute and we'll all just kind of experience it and we'll just see what happens. Nothing would irritate Steve Morris more. Nothing would <laughs> irritate Steve Morris more than just let's just see what happens, man. Totally. A hundred percent. Well, what's funny is that so the producer had been a producer on Roman Polanski movies. Oh, cool. And this is his first time producing a Hal Ashby movie. Oh. And he's like roman is everywhere every you know i remember we did chinatown and they were talking about exactly how the uh the blinds were sitting and exactly (laughs) the color of this and exactly where the camera moved like every single detail roman is all over yeah the the producer couldn't even find hal on set (laughs) (laughs) and then it like people are a whole bunch of people are doing stuff and then someone says like what do you think hal and he goes yeah it's cool you know, <laughs> works. And Ca- Caleb Deschanel was really scared of it. He was like, "How is?" Because for a cinematographer, like you need to have a plan. You have to yeah. have shot list, like you know. And for the AD, and how are we going to make our day? And he ended up loving it. Yeah, because everyone contributes. You know, sometimes you got to break out of your comfort zone a little bit, or have the. Totally. I know it's scary. I know it's scary. Everyone knows it's scary, but like you never know what can you can create. It can be a beautiful mess or an incredible uh, result. And it ends up that the president wants to hear what Ben thinks of this big speech that's coming. But I think, Mr. President, that it's very dangerous to play around with temporary measures at a time like this. And while this conversation is happening, the doctor is up in Chauncey's room, searching the room to find out clues to who this guy really is. Yeah. And I love, by the way, that the Secret Service find him ransacking the room and have to search him. <laughs> Mr. Garner, do you agree with Ben or do you think we can stimulate growth through temporary incentives? So the president of the United States <laughs> is asking a, about key eco- economic policies mm-hmm. to Chauncey Gardner. Yeah. And there's a long pause, a very long pause. And then he says, as long as the roots are not severed, all is well. And all will be well in the garden. And there's a pause. And the president goes, in the garden. Yes. And Ben is loving this <laughs> because he goes, he's, he thinks he has Chauncey pegged. Mm-hmm. This guy is a genius, right? In a garden, growth has its season. First comes spring and summer, but then we have fall and winter. And then we get spring and summer again. And again, the president takes it in. Spring and summer. Yes. And then Ben interprets it. I think what our insightful young friend is saying is that we welcome the inevitable seasons of nature 
but we're upset by the seasons of our economy. And the president is blown away. <laughs> they actually applaud. I admire your good, solid sense. That's precisely what we lack on Capitol Hill. So this meeting has completely changed the way the president is thinking about the economy. Yeah. And he thanks Ben. He thanks Chauncey. Thank you for taking time out with a dying man. No, I won't have any of that. Why don't you listen to your friend Chauncey here? This is a time to think of life. Now, let's take a look at this, right? Because... Yes, let's take a look at it. (laughs) Granted, yes, let's. Granted, this is 2021. But I'm looking at this one, and I and I want to say this. I wonder if I've got the words for it. Sometimes I get in trouble with my words. I don't give a shit. It's my honest opinions. But, like, this moment to me struck me as I was, well, I should stop the movie after this scene because I was like, I need to process what my thoughts are in this moment. And this is a powerless person's fantasy. And by that I mean, mm. in Hal Ashby's point of view, Politicians are these dumb, soulless people that can be easily tricked by a simpleton. That's not true. Now, it's the public that gets tricked by the platitudes and by the simple approaches and by metaphors or analogies that are being used. It's not the politicians, but this is a hippie's point of view. It is them. It is though they are the dummies. They are the blah blah blah. But actually, it takes an incredible amount of strength and uh, knowledge to get into a position of power. Now, Trump, notwithstanding, that's a separate issue completely. But normally, and in fact, for dec- centuries, some of the most revered people in our lives as the history of the country were presidents. Some of the most intelligent people to hold the office were presidents. So. I get the indictment that he's trying to make, obviously, but I also think this isn't an easy indictment to make from someone who is not and has no experience in those halls of power. Because um, you could easily make a film about Hal Ashby being uh, being the president, where uh, you know a simple PA can give him some kind of knowledge while he's smoking weed about a scene that is so simple and easy, anyone could have said it, and he's duped by it. You know what I'm saying? So this is, I, I find this to be an interesting part, an interesting element of of the scene as I was watching it. So maybe it's an overall indictment of anybody that's in power, but I also don't 100% buy the conceit of this moment. Well, it, it's funny. It, it's funny that, I, I think I'm more cynical than you are in this circumstance. <laughs> so first of all, I don't think this movie's realistic. Like I don't, I don't oh, sure. think, like I, you said, it's a fable. Yeah. I, I don't think we're trying to say that this would actually happen, but I am way more happy to condemn all humans of being a lot stupider than, uh, <laughs> than maybe you are. And, and, and yes, because here's the thing, I am. Yeah. Cause Perhaps. here's the thing is like, people are duped at every single level. You know, we are presented with a thing that sounds interesting and we just start believing it. I mean, QAnon is a good example of a whole bunch of people, many of whom are really intelligent and successful, Mm -hmm. surprisingly, that Mm -hmm. once you start buying a certain thing. Yeah. Well, then you buy the next thing and then you buy the next thing. Mm -hmm. Once you sign into the idea that Chauncey Gardner is an intelligent, well-educated, high-class person, 
and you buy one thing, well, then everything he says must be intelligent and high level. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that we are so brought in by appearances and, yeah. and particularly this class thing of you went to Yale because your daddy gave a lot of money to Yale mm -hmm. and you got C's and you dress the right way and you speak the right way and you act the right way and people yeah. give you the big job. Right. You know, it's how it's how a class continually reinforces itself. You know, it's funny that the movie that occurred to me that is the exact opposite of this movie mm -hmm. is Trading Places. Oh, yeah. Right. Because this movie takes a person who looks and because of his clothes and speaks in a way that people think he's one of us. Yeah. And so they give him all of this power in a weird way. And yet he's completely an idiot. Yeah, and Trading yeah. Places is a movie about a guy who completely isn't one of us, mm -hmm. but is actually a genius, mm -hmm. you know, and all he needed was the opportunity to come in and then he could do amazing things. You know, right. the other thing about this movie that I keep thinking about, it's also we could say about religion, because like you said, oh, he's like the Buddha, you know, oh, yeah, 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 is that if you think about religious doctrine, how often is it a metaphor that is then interpreted? Yeah. You know, like the lilies of the field, like the seeds that fall on good places or rocky places. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, there's all these statements. And then I remember when I was a kid and was doing like Hebrew school and meeting with a rabbi. And I remember that he said, well, there's all this uh, Talmudic debate about interpretation of the Torah and what it all mm. means. And sometimes it gets down to like numerology. Uh, have you ever been to a Passover service? Yes. Yeah. Okay. There's all this stuff. I, the Haggadah my family reads from is like 70 years old. So it's a very mm -hmm. old fashioned one, but there's all this stuff they talk about, about plagues and numbers and how we count things. And there's this debate going on between a bunch of rabbis. And one of the debates, which always cracks me up is how many plagues are there? <laughs> and there's one guy that says, well, there's a list of things that God brings this, 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 and this, and there are four of them. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, therefore, there's not 10 plagues because he said these four things. There's actually 40 plagues in Egypt. And therefore, because of some other bit of math, it's 200 plagues in uh, when they go out into the desert and the Red Sea, right. you know, and then another guy says, no, no, no. Cause it says the finger of God when then they're in Egypt and the hand of God, when they're out uh, in the desert and therefore it's one in five. So it's actually 50 plagues versus 250 <laughs> plagues or something like that. And it's just like, all of this interpretation, it's just makes, it's just silly. <laughs> and so, and yet religions, are, I mean, there's so many things in Catholicism and all these religions where yeah. they do, we're going to hold this censor with this incense because of this one word in this one place that says we should do this. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So it isn't to me that strange that someone makes these sort of innocuous statements about a garden. And a whole bunch of people go like, that's the wisdom. That's the truth. Yeah. Right. You know? and, and the religious aspects, you're right. Because obviously the Garden of Eden, the gardener of the Garden of Eden is God. Right. Uh, so in instance, Chauncey being the gardener. But also remember, Shirley McLean's name is Eve, Adam and Eve in the garden. So in essence, yep. there's that all of that circling it as well uh, as we go forward and, you know, get into the other stuff with there. But like it's all there to play with if you want to play with it and look for it and see it for sure. Well, and there's, you know, we just had the line of um, him saying, you know, there's a, there's a season and there's spring and there's fall and all right. this. Well, that's to everything there is a season. Yeah, there is a you season. Know? Turn, turn, turn. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Often I'll leave some information on Mr. Chauncey Gardner's background. Gardner, yes, sir. 
I'd like it sometime today. No problem, Chief. And Ben is just so damn impressed with Chauncey. <laughs> and now he's like, hey, you remember that thing I was talking to you about last night? I think you're the right guy to take the job. You, he's offering him some to be in charge of some huge institution. Yeah. And Chauncey goes, I understand, Ben. <laughs> he understands. He doesn't know anything. He has no idea what the hell's going on around him. Right. Ben gets back in the wheelchair because he's exhausted. And Chauncey says, I'm sorry you're so sick, Ben. And Ben takes this as like the most compassionate. I think this is like the first person that has allowed him to weep for his death. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because the way he takes Chauncey's hand is just like, he's near tears. And yeah. Peter Sellers is so amazing. Cause I think he does care about Ben. Yeah. There's something there, but it's like a child. Like Sonny never had. That's an irony, right? Cause the old man ignored him yeah. and shut him away from the world. This man wants to hand him responsibility wants to uh, further his life, wants to make him a part of his life. It's two completely different experiences. And yeah, he's probably substituting in for the son he might have never had. Or who hates him, maybe, because he's yep. a rich guy who you know wasn't there for him. You know, We're out in the garden with Eve. And, you know, he's talking about, I like gardening. <laughs> but everything she he says, she's interpreting as something deep. And there's a great yeah. moment where he says... Young plants do much better if a person helps them. And she, like, is stunned by this because she thinks that she is the young plant that needs help. You know what I mean? <laughs> she thinks this is a message directly to her. Like, he's fucking Yoda, you yeah. know? But it's not. <laughs> the president makes a speech, and he references Chauncey Gardner, and he quotes him almost exactly. To quote Mr. Gardner, a most intuitive man, as long as the roots of industry remain firmly planted in the national soil, the economic prospects are undoubtedly sunny. <laughs> and everyone's watching. The nurses are watching. And they're like going, yay, Chauncey, the president is talking about you. And he goes on and says, gentlemen, let us not fear the inevitable chill and storms of autumn and winter. Instead, let us anticipate the rapid growth of springtime. Let us await the rewards of summer. <laughs> and then Ben gets sick and we have to rush out of the room. Yeah. There's a phone call from the New York Times. Chauncey, first of all, I don't think he's ever spoken on a phone before. Oh, yeah, because it says he's not there. He's there. Is he there? He's not there. And she finally gets him to stop for a second and then answer the goddamn quote. And it's if you <laughs> interpret that this is a businessman who's the an advisor to the president, his answers are perfect non-answer answers. Perfect no comments. Yeah. But in fact, they're just him saying, I don't, he doesn't know anything. Uh, what we'd like to know are some facts, um, such as what is the exact relationship between yourself and the First American Financial Corporation? I think you should ask Mr. Rand that. And while this is happening, he's watching like a, a yoga exercise thing on TV and he just starts exercising. And then he hangs up on the New York Times because he's more involved in the TV. Yeah. And he gets invited to be on TV. Yes. Yeah. On Air Force One, the president goes, what do you mean he has no background? By the way, one of the guys I'm pretty sure is the is the governor in the TV show Benson. Yeah, that is him. Yeah, yeah. that's absolutely. Him. And of course, we I think we did 1776. So he's in that as well. So, yeah. oh, that's right. Yeah. 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 He's the guy that comes in from Connecticut or something like that. He's a very well-known man. Oh, we're well aware of that. Sir. He's a close friend and advisor of Benjamin Rand. We're at the TV studio and they welcome him in as a famous businessman. 
Do you realize more people will be watching you tonight than all those that have seen theater plays in the last 40 years? Oh, yes? Yes. Why? Hell, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and he laughs. Yep. The guy goes, hell, I don't know. <laughs> like, it's just almost like it's madness. I'm, I'm a part of the system, and even I think the system is messed up. So, yeah. And more and more, there's rumors about Chauncey Gardner going around. Reporters are trying to figure out who this guy is. And the, report, the reporter has the same thing as the president's advice. There's no information. There's nothing. Zilch. He's in the green room getting makeup put on. And someone brings him a glass of water, drinks the water, and the guy walks out, puts the glass in a plastic bag because he's like working for the FBI or something mm -hmm. to try to figure out who Gardner is. And then it's time to get on TV. And this is like clearly the, you know, it's clearly Tonight Show. It's clearly Johnny Carson. Yeah. Um, and one of the things we find out, by the way, is that he's filling in because the vice president couldn't make it, which is a plot, more of a plot point in the book uh, that kind of gets dropped here because they go in a different direction. It's always uh, somewhat surprising to find men like yourself working so intimately with the president and yet somehow managing to remain relatively unknown. Yes, it is surprising. <laughs> yes. And he says, well, your anonymity is likely to be a thing of the past. And he says, oh, good. And everyone thinks he's making a joke. So everybody yeah. laughs. And the president is also watching. Uh, and there's a weird thing with his wife where clearly she wants to get it on with the president. And he's not into <laughs> he's that. Not it. Yeah. And he asked, I assume because the president quoted you that you're inclined to agree with his view of the economy. It is possible for uh, everything to grow strong. And there is plenty of room for new trees and new flowers of all kinds. And the audience, this is where I totally don't, uh, this is where it's completely doesn't seem realistic to me. This is a fable, but the audience eats it up. This is like yeah. the greatest thing they've ever heard. Standing <laughs> ovations. I don't, I don't think us humans at all are this stupid. Especially after Watergate. We're certainly more cynical, even in 79. Although certainly there have been, you know, a lot of politicians with a real simple speech, with yeah. a real simple catchphrase, with almost nothing behind it. Yes. And people eat it up. A face in the crowd, some might say. Some yeah. Might say. Yeah. I mean, we are both smart and also pretty damn shallow. Yes. Yeah. So I think in some ways this is my favorite moment of the movie because one of the people watching uh, Chauncey on The Tonight Show or whatever it is, is mm -hmm. Louise. It's for sure a white man's world in America. It is possible. I raised that boy since he was the size of a pistol. Had no brains at all. Short changed by the Lord and dumb as a jackass. Look at him now. Yes, sir. All you gotta be is white in America to get whatever you want. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that, that line is so perfect. It's sadly truthful. One of the other people watching the TV is Thomas, the lawyer. Yes. And he's suddenly going... Oh, his conclusion is not that moron who I met who is a gardener is everyone thinks is smart, but really he's just this gardener. No, he thinks that he must be a genius who was fooling him for some scheme. Right. On TV, they ask him, what sort of gardener would you be? I am a very serious gardener. Oh, I'm sure you are, Mr. Gardner. This is where people are starting to think of him as, could this guy be president? You know, yeah, right. like that's what's so insane. 
Right. I also love, by the way, the way they structure it. It's the same thing we saw in Oh God, which is that we see the beginning of the interview, but then we actually cut to Chauncey watching himself in the limousine. Yeah. You know, and it's a great way to kind of leap forward in time. Good point. Yeah. He arrives home to applause. Everyone is extremely impressed with him. Uh, It's later on and Ben tells Chauncey that there's this big event for the Soviet ambassador. And would you mind taking Eve to it? It would be a big help to me. And he says, yes, Ben, I would love to escort Eve. Oh, Chauncey, you have the gift of being natural. That's a great talent, my boy. Oh, I hope the entire country was listening. The entire country. The president is having some sexual problems. <laughs> yeah, it's um, so weird. Do, do you like the subplot with the sex stuff no, with him? Like, it, no. it doesn't make any sense. I don't think it makes any sense. I mean, I think what they're trying to go for is like, this guy is so stressed out and so lost and so scared as president that it's affecting every part of his life. Right. And and that Chauncey Gardner is not necessarily helping him at this moment. No. That's it, what it, I think. Yeah, and also that Chauncey's like essentially rendering impotent, him yeah. impotent because he's, kind of taken away his power. Maybe he's castrating his power in a way. So I could see that, but still. No, it's, it's weird. weird. I don't, yeah, I don't weird. I, it, it, it's a, it's kind of a seventies comedy plot line oh, that I think, point. you know what I mean? That I don't yeah. think we would do today. True. Not because it's, it's offensive just because it's, I think showing the president as impotent was, was funnier then maybe. Right. Right. Eve and Chauncey, she's walking him back to the, his room. The music is romantic and she is starting to flirt. I don't have very many friends. And Ben's friends are, uh, oh, quite a bit older than I am. Quite a bit. <laughs> and then they kiss. And he does nothing. Yeah. And she pulls away smiling. I love the way she backs up. It's just, she's really cute in yeah. this movie. Agreed. And now we're at a bar and our lawyer with the woman lawyer are meeting to try to figure out what was going on with this gardener guy. And kind of goes like, he made a fool out of me. <laughs> And that his political career might be over because of him getting bamboozled by this guy. Uh, the president's meeting with his staff. They have no information on the guy. The FBI thinks that the only person who could pull this off must be an FBI guy. The the CIA, <laughs> they have no idea what's going on. And and, and the president's like, well, didn't you get anything on him? And it's like, yeah, we got some information, but it's not going to be useful. He's like, well, give me what you got. And you're like, well. His suits were made by a New York tailor, handmade, in 1928. Taylor went out of business in 1933 and later took his own life. Uh, His underwear, all of the finest cloth, the factory was destroyed by fire in 1948. This man carries no identification, no driver's license, no wallet, no credit cards. Chauncey is watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Of course he is. Again, everything is picked for a reason, and this one in particular. And in comes Eve, and she gives him all sorts of compliments on how everybody's talking about him. He's just watching TV. Yeah. And so she's making little signals because she's in her nightgown that she wants to move a little closer. He ignores them. She sits down on the bed. He doesn't have any response. (laughs) She says, you don't mind me being here. And he says, no, Eve, I like you to be here. She looks at him, looks, he looks back at the TV. She's starting to get frustrated. And we hear Fred Rogers singing, you are my friend, you are special. And she awkward, he's got one of those bed, breakfast in bed table things. Yeah, yeah. I always thought that was really a weird thing. I don't understand why anyone wants to eat breakfast in bed. Uh, what do you want, cockroaches in your bed? Yeah, no it seems yeah. kind of disgusting. 
I agree with you. There's plenty of good things to do in bed. <laughs> oh, and it's hello. not one of them. Hello. Um, and she awkwardly kind of moves it away and things fall. The whole thing is very awkward. And finally she just reaches in and just starts rubbing his head and kisses him and kind of motorboats him. And he's watching TV. Yeah. And what her response is, she frowns, but because she thinks that he's this amazing person, she thinks he must be doing this for a reason, other than that he just doesn't know what the hell to do, and he likes watching TV. Oh, I'm so grateful, John. Uh, special, you are. I would have just opened up at the slightest touch, but you're so strong that I can trust myself with you. I'm glad you didn't open, Eve. (laughs) (laughs) So she thinks that he is, because she's married and because he's protecting her by not making a move on her. Right. By not acquiescing to her moves. Yeah, exactly. And then she grabs a rose and she slowly backs away. And he watches Mr. Rogers. (laughs) When the doctor, who, by the way, when he first met, chance yeah heard the name of the lawyer because chance mentioned this lawyer thomas from whatever the thing is and now he calls him and says he wants to meet right um we're at a black tie event and reporters are asking questions they asked did he read what was his reaction to the washington post he says i did not read it mr gardner the new york times spoke of your peculiar brand of optimism what was your reaction to that i do not know what it means which if a smart guy says that then that is a comment but in right. fact, no, he literally doesn't know what, understand what they're saying. <laughs> they ask, which papers does he read? He says, I do not read papers. I watch TV. And they find this refreshing. Yeah. Well, yeah, because he's the first one that could honestly say, the reporter says like, well, you know, a lot of politicians wouldn't be willing to admit this, but the fact that he is willing to admit it, because uh, we know that they do watch TV more than they read newspapers. This is a refreshing breath of fresh air, right? But it made me think this scene, obviously, because you couldn't know this in 79, but it made me think of the Sarah Palin, Katie Couric interview, right? Totally. Where tra- she tried to pin her down with what newspapers, and she couldn't name one newspaper that she reads, you know? And of course, now they've twisted that whole narrative into it, you know, mainstream media and fake news, and they took her ignorance and used it as a foundation to create some narrative about news. But it's just like, which is ridiculous, but like this is that kind of thing all over? Well, not all over, but like a, a kind of previewing what we're going to get uh, in that interaction with with uh, Katie Couric and, and Palin. It's fascinating. Well, and this is where you go like, I mean, this is so ridiculous. No one would yeah. ever elect a person who doesn't read <laughs> newspapers, you know, who just watches TV all the time right. and gets all their information from the TV. We would never, I mean, obviously that's a person that could never get elected in any position at all. <laughs> or is it? Or, or is, is it? Well, right. this is where it's like I. This is why I say said earlier. It's like I think people are. I'm pretty cynical about how people yeah. can be taken in That's by fair. stuff. You know. Yeah. I mean, this is this movie is at a ridiculous level, but mm-hmm. and now he's going to meet the Russian ambassador. You may find, my friend, that we are not so far from each other. Huh? Not so far. And he means politically. Mm-hmm. And Chance says we are not so far from each other. Our chairs are almost touching. (laughs) (laughs) We we go back to the bar where now reporters are going like, well, is he trying to cover something up? Is that maybe he's a foreign operative or homosexual or criminal? Like 
we got to figure out who this guy is. And the lawyer is talking to our doctor, to Richard Desart, who is finding out how they found him in the garden. Yeah. Back with the Russian ambassador. Mr. Gardenia, do you by any chance enjoy Krylov's fables? And I ask you that because there is something, um, there's something Krylovian about you. And Chance says nothing. And then the Russian speaks in Russian and he and Chance laughs. <laughs> and they go, oh, so you speak Russian. And now he starts talking to him in Russian. And Chauncey's nodding. Yeah. So this thing is growing. Um, <laughs> and Eve is very impressed that he had the Russian ambassador eating out of his hand. And by the way, other women are coming up to Eve to say how sexy he is. Yeah. And someone offers him a book deal. I can't write. <laughs> of course not. Who can nowadays? Look, uh, we can give you a six-figure advance. I'll provide you with the very best ghostwriter proofreaders. I can't read. <laughs> of course you can't. No one has the time. We, we glance at things. We watch television. Because they just assume <laughs> that he's speaking metaphorically. Yep. Yep. Then there's a very strange moment where a gay man meets him. Yeah, this finds is him weird, attractive. isn't it? Why this do you is, throw this yeah. in there? Why do you throw that in there? I wonder. I, again, I think it's like the president's impotence. I think in 1979, this was like a really scandalous yeah. sort of idea. Yeah. It's some. This is some of the stuff I don't particularly like in the movie is the yeah. sexual stuff. I, yeah, if they cut all the sexual stuff out, I think the movie works even better. But yeah. Um, uh, in the book, he does go upstairs with the guy and oh. watches the guy masturbate. Oh, interesting. Later on, they're in the limo and Eve is just, I feel so close with you. And then she says, Ben understands my feelings for you, by the way, and he accepts them. So it seems like... Ben and Eve are setting up or assuming that when Ben dies, she's just going to hook up with uh, Chauncey. Right. <laughs> ben is making deals, selling shares, making plans for his death. And the doctor comes in clearly with the intention to say, listen, this guy really is a gardener. He's an idiot. You've been taken in by him. I'm really sorry. And he's about to say that when Ben says there's something about him that I trust. He makes me feel good. Since he's been around, the thought of dying has been much easier for me. And the doctor takes it in and doesn't tell him. <laughs> Which I think, I mean, I guess that's the right choice. Yeah. Why mess up his last few days or years or what, or moments or whatever? You know, why do that? I guess but maybe he should tell Eve. Right. That's know, fair. She's not dying. That's fair. Chauncey is in bed. He is watching people kiss on TV. Yeah. This, by the way, is from the Thomas Crown Affair that, uh, oh. that Norman Jewison and Hal Ashby made. And Eve enters and he grabs her and passionately kisses her. And while watching the TV, the TV is basically giving him instructions. And so they're spinning around the TV. So he spins around with her. And then the TV show goes to commercial and he stops kissing her. <laughs> And she's just completely frustrated. She is clearly yeah. in love, really horny, really wants him, and he's given her nothing. I don't know what you like. <laughs> I like to watch Eve. Yeah. Which he is saying, I like to watch TV. Yeah. And she interprets that as a really, oh, my God, you want to watch me masturbate, basically. And she is scared, I think, and turned on and he's switching channels 
And this moment, I actually, so I don't like all the sex stuff. I think yeah. Shirley MacLaine is really funny in this scene. Yeah, Shirley MacLaine is funny. She makes it work. Absolutely. But uh, it's weird. Yeah, it's and weird. she basically, I think that his totally bizarre behavior in the end is a complete turn on for mm. her in this scene. Okay. I mean, she has this weird laughing orgasm thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and he, she's like grabbing his ankle (laughs) and he's watching, finds a yoga person. And so he gets up on the bed. He's just trying to do yoga and she's not aware that he's not even watching her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Karen, by the way, asked me what I thought of this scene when I was a kid. I have no idea. I don't know (laughs) what I interpreted and I don't know what I knew. I mean, I was 11. So I, you know, I knew something. (laughs) Something's <laughs> um, uh, happening down there. Yeah, they're in the sick room, and Ben says, "No more shots." Yeah, it's not good, Ben. I know. Ben, because of Chauncey Gardner, has accepted his own death. Yeah. This one, this one, I got emotional about because that was how my dad, my final, my dad had to finally tell my brother, like, no more experiments. Yeah, and no more. Don't. Because my brother, in a desperate attempt to keep my father alive, wanted to subject subject him to this experimental um, treatment up in Boston and wanted to put my dad on a train. And my dad was just so destroyed by this point physically from the cancer and everything. He just said to him, no more, no more. I'm ready. I'm, I'm ready to accept it, you know. And so that's I think every person who's maybe I think most people who go to that point with this with an illness are just like exhausted about trying to live and just want to go and they've had their time you know i think we are so messed up about death in this country Mm. you know because i mean like we've taken this thing that used to happen in the home with you know like it used to be that when someone gets really sick you call the priest yes you know and now you get sent to this sterile horrible hospital place yeah and go through you know, and there's because I watched it uh, with my dad, but really particularly with my grandmother, where she had mm-hmm. lung cancer and, she, you know, her life got extended by a year and a half or so, a lot yeah. of which was just awful. Yeah. You know, so you're spending hundreds of thousand dollars putting someone through all sorts of painful, difficult, awful stuff mm-hmm. to extend the worst part of their life for a few months. Yeah. You know. Or yeah. days, or even or weeks. days. Yeah. It's like, why? What? What's the? What's the point of this? I, I always think it's selfish. I always think it's the people who are alive, yes. not wanting to let go of the person who is dying, because they want to spend as much time as possible with that person before they go. I actually don't think it's about most of the time trying to extend that person's life. I think it's more a matter of you want to have them around longer. It's, it's, not, it's a human thing. I'm not judging that, right? It's oh, a human yeah. thing to want that. I'm not judging anybody who does that. I'm just saying, I think, I feel like that's the real foundation of it all. Well, and I think it's even, it's not even, it is keeping them around. I think that's mm. part of it. But I also think it's that person's denial that this person is dying. Yeah, true. You know, it's like, true. I want to hold on to a belief that they're going to make it. And it's like, I remember uh, when my aunt was quite ill with cancer mm-hmm. And I went to see her and Karen, and I walked in and saw her. We hadn't seen her in a while. We're like, Oh, it's, it's close. You know, wow. it was really obvious right. that it was going to be a matter of weeks. Yeah. And I talked to my cousin, his, her, her, uh, his son, her son. And, and this is a few months later. And I was like, Oh yeah, well I knew when we saw her mm-hmm. that she was going to die. And he goes, you did. How did you know? And he who was right in the middle of it couldn't see yeah. it. Right. 
Did but I who came and visited it, I was like, oh my God, no, yeah. she's yeah. yeah. Um, and she was trying to keep on the, keep up the good face for the family. Oh yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Rather than saying like, Hey, I'm done, <laughs> you know, yeah. let me go. They're out on the balcony, Eve and Chauncey. Yeah. And she is speaking in the most poetic fashion about her love for him. Desire flows within me. And when you watch me, my passion, it dissolves the desire. And I reveal myself to myself and I am drenched and purged. But this is like, I've heard people when they find their guru, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. Like whatever, in whatever form that takes and they'll speak in this, oh my God, way. Yeah. And I think she does feel like she feels that way. Mm -hmm. Mr. Ryan would like to see you. I would like to see Ben. And so he goes to see Ben leaving her alone on the balcony. Chauncey, I hope that you'll stay here with Eve. Watch over her. She's a delicate flower. A flower. Yes, Ben. And then Ben says, there's so much left to do. And he's trying to still make plans and yeah. dies. In mid-sentence. In mid-sentence. I, I was really surprised that they chose that, you know, as I said, first time watching this movie, chose that as as the method with which he died. I thought he'd say one last final thing and then boom. But the fact he was half sentence, it's incredible. He's with the doctor right after Ben died. And I think he is moved, by the way. I think there are tears in Peter Sellers' eyes in this scene. I think he mm. is moved by Ben's death to the degree that he's capable. Yeah. Eve is staying. She said she will not close up the house. You've become quite a close friend of Eve's, haven't you, Chance? He calls him Chance. Yeah. Not Chauncey. Right. Trying to get the Because yeah, he knows. Response. Yeah, he knows. And he says, yeah. yes, I love Eve very much, Robert, which I think in Chance's way he does. Yeah. And Robert says, And you really are a gardener, aren't you? I, I am a gardener. And he walks away. And it's a great shot because you have Desart in the foreground and over his shoulder, you have Chauncey walking away and Desart's out of focus and Chauncey yeah. is in focus. And as he exit, we rack focus back to Robert who says, I understand. I understand. It's the funeral. And the president is giving this eulogy. And he's, as you said, he's using some of Ben's quotes. I have no use for those on welfare. No patience whatsoever. But if I am to be honest with myself, I must admit that they have no use for me either. In the midst of this funeral, as the pallbearers are taking the coffin up to some ridiculous, like, <laughs> um, it looks like Illuminati, you know, yes. sort of pyramid, Chauncey walks away from the funeral through the woods, below the house. And the guys who are the pallbearers start talking about time running out and they have a decision to make. And they mention some names that they reject. And then the pallbearers say, what about Chauncey Gardner? But what do we know of the man? Absolutely nothing. To raise your right we don't have an inkling of his past. Correct. That could sight. be an asset. And they talk about the great responses he got from the TV show. And it would be absolute unity to support the president for another time. That is exactly why I agree with Ben's final wishes. What are they talking about? Uh, making him president. Essentially. Yep. And uh, I love that they're doing it as like they completely ignore 
what they're supposed to be doing, which is having some reverence for burying this man who probably helped all of them into the positions that they're in. They're already mentally moving on yep. to the next position or the next person that they can uh, manipulate or use in power for their own benefits. Uh, and so, yeah, there, and they say there's no, I can't handle four more years with Jack Warden as the president or the character yeah. of Jack Warden as the president. So they're already planning to, uh, force this guy out in essence uh, before uh, and move Chauncey in as the delegate or representative for them. Yeah. Well, and this is where I go, is the movie a ridiculous fable? Yes. Is it ridiculous that this guy would be elected president? Yes. Uh, <laughs> is it possible that uh, powerful people use personalities that are popular among the public in order to maintain their power? Oh yeah. 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 Not naming any names, but that's, <laughs> you know, well, that's what people are doing behind the scenes. Oh, By yeah. the way, the way it works in the book is that the vice president canceled the TV show because there's some sort of scandal going on. And the implication in the oh. book is that Chauncey is going to be vice president. Oh, interesting. OK, yeah. I think um, it's more powerful for president. I think it's more powerful. Yeah, I, I, I think it's both more powerful and total and less realistic. Oh, OK. You know what I mean? That's fair. It doesn't really matter. Chauncey's out in the woods. He saves a tree, a little sapling. And yeah. is quite pleased with himself. And then as the president is finishing his eulogy, <laughs> Chauncey walks on water out into the center of the pond. John, what did you think when you got to this moment? As you said, in my in my head, is so much f- fabulistic, fabulist stuff already had happened throughout the movie that to me, when he walked out on water, I was like, yep, that makes so much sense. That makes all the sense in the world for what you presented to me. Uh, and him dipping his umbrella. I thought that was a step too far because I'm like, let us uh, react to the moment. Don't really make it clear that he is actually walking right. on water. But that being said, I thought it was a great, uh, perfect ending to this movie um, because he is so simple that to him, walking on water wouldn't carry the significance that it would for anybody else or the religious implication or whatever, because he know he doesn't know any better. So to him, this is the quickest way back to the house. I'm just going to walk across the water. Uh, and I, and I thought it was, uh, I thought it was a genius ending to be honest with you. And I love it. Uh, and I, I bet people lost their minds and reacted to it uh, in the theaters um, uh, because of the religious implication of it. So, yeah. It is a very divisive moment. No surprise. So, yeah. so, so I'll tell you a couple of things. The first of all, the putting the umbrella in the water to kind of prove that he's walking yeah. in the water. That's Caleb Deschanel's idea. Oh, this is not the original ending of the movie. The original ending of the movie was that Eve came and found him in the woods and they had a little scene. Oh, the way it came about is that. Hal was having so much fun and he felt he was amazed at all the reactions, the way everyone reacted to the character of Chauncey Gardner Mm -hmm, and thought mm -hmm. it was working so well. And he had this thought of, man, they just buy everything about him. I bet that he could walk on water and they would buy it. Ah. That is where the idea came from. Oh, wow. Um, There's obviously lots of ways to interpret it. Like, I think you're the way you said it is. I really like, which is like, he doesn't know he can't walk on water. Yeah. There's also like, a way when I was a kid, I kind of went, wait, are they saying that it's not just everybody thinks of him as a religious figure that in fact, he is a religious figure that, and cause there's a weird way he's, you know, he's the virgin birth, you yeah. know, oh, he yeah. has no parents. We don't know where he came from. He raised in this Points. completely 
odd way and comes to save the world, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people just like went, nope, I'm out. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like it. And then we go to outtakes of, of, of Peter Sellers yes. cracking up, trying to do this speech about Raphael. What was the message, Mr. Gardner? Now get this hunky. You go tell Raphael that I ain't taking no jive. <laughs> Peter Sellers thinks this is why he didn't get the Oscar. He thought th thinks he lost the best pick, best actor because they showed him messing up. Uh, Peter Sellers is foolish for thinking that he was never going to beat Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino and Roy Scheider. That's in order. Those are the top three performances, wow. uh, in my opinion. And then you get to Peter Sellers. And I think Jack Lemmon was nominated for the China syndrome as well or something like that. And wow. so to me, I don't think Peter Sellers had any chance to win the Oscars. And the truth is, you look at Peter Sellers career, there's maybe five to seven really notable movies and in between, there are a lot of flops and failures. Yeah. And I was doing analysis for this or reading some analysis. Well, they mentioned how he was doing this movie like, you know, uh, after an, a few years of failures of trying to do some movies uh, and trying to get because the Pink Panther movies stand out, certainly shot in the dark and what have you. Um, but it is for a lot of people, the law of diminishing returns as the Pink Panther yeah. series goes along. But there's not that many great films once you climb out of the early 60s uh, for Peter Sellers. Doesn't mean he wasn't an incredible talent, just his instinct for picking these things and doing certain things uh, didn't really bear itself out, you know, uh, overall. So I, I, I understand, but I think it's a great way to and I think uh, I think Hal Ashby put the. Uh, that in as a way to kind of soften the blow or if Al didn't put it in the studio, put it in as a way of softening the blow of having him walk on water. Because if you immediately go to deleted scenes or gag reel or whatever, the audience is kind of, oh, oh, okay. Oh, all right. So, all right. I'm glossed in pe watching Peter Sellers, a legendary comedian, uh, uh, mess up during takes uh, and the things he's saying, which is repeating this uh, uh, street, oh, this sorry, sorry this uh, uh, young black man's uh, comments is funny, so right. uh, it works. So to me, I I think that's a ridiculous thing for him to take away to say that that was the reason he lost. He lost because legitimately these other performances were more magnetic, yeah. and they would have won anyway. It's funny. I think you know we talked before about comedians. They don't have the longest shelf life. You know what I mean? <laughs> like no. it, it, there are very few that stay consistently funny for a long period of time. My yeah. guess is. If you and I were in England in the 50s and early 60s oh. and paid attention to the goon show, I my guess is that is where he peaks comedically, yes, you know, probably. Yeah, probably. I, I bet it would have been the most amazing thing. I bet you and I would both have been gone home and glued to our radios like everybody mm. else. Yeah. To listen to the goon show. Hal says some really interesting things about editing and just seems so spot on to me. He says that you can't know how anything's going to cut until you start cutting. He says it's not about the ideas you can impose on the film. It's what happens to you when you are watching film is that you have an emotional experience and that you then cut based on your experience of looking at the footage. That's totally reflects how I edit. It doesn't reflect how everybody edits by the right, way, right. Uh, but right. it does reflect how I edit. He says the process never stops. He was making cuts at 4 a.m. on the day before it opened. Oh, Wow. He said there are 50 new pieces of film that went in in the last week that had never been in the film before. 
And every time he watches one of his movies, I mean, he's passed away, but when he would watch an older movie of his, all he could think about was all the things he would change. So here's one more little bit of controversy. It comes time to figure out the credits. And Jerzy Kaczynski, who wrote the first couple of screenplays, sees the movie, says, this movie is better than my book, and says, I need to get full credit for the screenplay, which he did not write. Robert Jones wrote it. The producers say Robert Jones wrote wrote it. Hal Ashby, who also did a pass on the screenplay, by the way, says Robert Jones wrote wrote it. Everybody who works on it says that. And it goes to arbitration, which means they send everybody's drafts to the WGA. The WGA looks at the final movie and they gave full credit to Kaczynski. Wow. Yep. Who was uh, nominated for uh, the Oscar for it. Wow. He was he won best screenplay in the in the British Academy Awards. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it sounds like there was just tremendous resentment towards him. Wow. And from everybody who worked on the movie. And that's where I go. Like I go back to, you know, how we met him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I go, man, this doesn't sound I, re- you know, it sounds like this is a problematic person. <laughs> Uh, the claims of plagiarism really started to hit him in the 80s, and he actually killed himself in 1991. Wow. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Jesus. I did not know that. Yeah. Good God. That's a, ah, that's a shame. And Peter Sellers died just about a year after this movie came out. Yeah. 54 yeah. years old, dude. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Maybe he was waiting to deliver this performance and. I don't know, because he had wanted to do it for so many years. I don't know. He frankly sounds like a really troubling person, you know, like yeah. a, both troubled and troubling. There's some incident with his one of his daughters where he has a blow up with her when she's 15 and like writes her a letter about her behavior and why he mm-hmm. will never speak to her again. And it sounds like while he was really a joy to work with, everyone said on this movie, that was not his reputation at all. Yeah. And um would, yeah. There was that video, there was that movie uh, that they did a few years ago where Jeffrey Rush played Peter Sellers, and it was exploring the uh, insane life he had and the, the difficult situations that he put himself in. Yeah. Um, so that is all I have on being there. John, do you have any final thoughts on this film? You saw I- it just today or yesterday. <laughs> yeah. I texted Steve. I said, this might be a brief encounter situation. We might have to talk through this movie and come to a place. And I have to say at the end of it, I feel like if nothing else, the film sparked a lot of conversation between us, which I enjoy. It's one of the things I most enjoy about doing the show is the conversations that we find ourselves in, even in movies that we may not see eye to eye on uh, fully, but I enjoyed the uh, uh, watching of the movie for the most part. I think the sex stuff kind of, you know, took me out of the movie a little bit, but then when other stuff was going on, I really enjoyed the performances. There's such a delicateness to this film. There's such a, um, um, almost like a sweet honesty to the film, even though it is skewering what it is skewing. It is satirizing what it is satirizing. There's still a little element of sweetness to it, uh, especially and driven, sorry, by the performance of Peter Sellers um, delivering, in essence, what some people have argued is the performance of his entire career just before he dies the next year. So, uh, so much uh, reverence and uh, appreciation I have for that. Uh, And certainly I'm very glad I watched it and it certainly made me want to watch some more Hal Ashby movies, if nothing else. So I, although I may not put it in the top 100 of my favorite films, I think it's absolutely a film people should watch and, and analyze and remember the time when it was made in order to per- properly process it and interpret it for real. 
So I really liked this movie as a kid mm. and I like it probably less now. <laughs> I, it, it's such a, it's such an odd one is that I think Peter Sellers is amazing. I think the subtlety of his performance is great. I think it's a very funny movie. I think that, it's almost like what is it, what it's about is more interesting to me to some degree than the movie. I, to, I totally agree with you about some of the sex stuff. Mm -hmm. I think that kind of feels out of place, but the big thing I think about is what it is saying about humans and how we mm. interpret other people's behavior based on our preconceived notions of them and how easy it is to take us in. I really think if someone wears the nice suit and they have the, and they speak in a certain way, we think a certain thing about them. Yeah. And I think that we aren't nearly as smart as we like to think of ourselves sometimes. <laughs> and a lot of evidence in a lot of places we can see, you know, wherever you are politically, wherever you are in terms of religion, there's always people or wherever you are in terms of society or business or philosophy or whatever, there's always a group of people you can look at and go just like, what are these people morons? Like, why are they believing this ridiculous stuff? And the answer is because we're not always that smart. You know, <laughs> we're not and that good at figuring that out. It's true. And those same people look at what you believe and say, what's wrong with you? You moron. What are you believing that stuff yep. for? So it's all a matter of perception and the subjective yeah. nature. for sure. So that's what we think of being there. We'd love to hear what you think, particularly if like John, this is your first time watching the movie. Please visit us on our Facebook page. Make sure to uh, like the Facebook page. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube. We want your comments on YouTube. Please leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts. Even if you're not an Apple person, you can still go to the Apple Podcast page and you can still leave a review and it would really, really help the show. If you want to buy or stream being there, you can do it through our website, cine-files.net. All the links to Amazon Prime and Amazon DVDs and Blu-rays and stuff are there. Um, you can follow the show at Cine underscore files on Twitter, on the Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. You can follow me at SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. And you can listen to my new Star Trek show with Scott Mance, Enterprise Incidents. Check that out on all the same places. John, how will people check you out? <laughs> you can check me out uh, at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. And please come on over to the uh, Outlaw Nation channel there. And I think today as we're dropping this episode, we're debuting our new show at 3 p.m. PT. It's called John and Wendy Explain the World. Me and Wendy Lee getting into the big news stories of the week, talking about what's trending on social media and explaining to you why. And also bringing on guest reviewers to talk about films or whatever is coming out that week, TV shows video games what have you so definitely a different type of show uh with some tweaks uh, going on here uh for the outlaw nation channel as well and of course the top 10 and uh the geek buddies podcasts that are out there in the world so thank you all so much so i think that is it for this week and we will be back next week with our live show cinephiles live will be next week i'm not going to quite say that it's another great film but john probably would and you'll find out what that is in a few days. Roll out!